When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. All right. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Knife Talk. This is being recorded as a single track over the uh, over the holiday. Uh, normally, I'm here. I'm Marco Malmasi of Malmasi Fire Arts. Usually, I'm here with Jeff Fader of Fader Knives and Craig Lockwood of Chop Knives. But we're doing a single track, and I have a very special guest here with me today, Aaron Wilburn of Wilburn Knives on Instagram. Uh, he is an incredibly talented master bladesmith. Um, I think he and he can correct me later if he if I get any of this wrong, but he got his master smith in 2013, I believe. Um, and I he's been in Blade magazine. I don't know how many. I feel like every time I see Blade magazine, Aaron's got knives in there. He's been on the cover, at, uh, I think, at least a few times for sure. And, you know, he's just he's an incredibly talented maker with a, a wide array of skills. And I just wanted to get him in here to talk with him to kind of get an idea of where he came from, how he got started and uh, and where he's at on his journey and where he wants to go. He also is a, a feature of our new calendar, the Artisans of Steel for 2021. He he is I, I should have looked before. I can't remember what month you're in, but uh I really appreciate you being part of it, Aaron, and uh, your work is absolutely beautiful. I look to it as a standard by which I kind of judge other stuff, as kind of harsh as that might sound. <laughs> um, it, hopefully that's a compliment for you. But please, sir. All right. So you got started. Let's see. Uh, I did. I went through your website and I, I did a little bit of reading and research on you. Uh, and as a quick background, you know, you you uh, you grew up in Idaho. You live back in Idaho now, but you had you spent some time in California where uh, you worked with your grandfather and uncle. And that's where you got your hands dirty in metal initially, it sounds like. And then you went down to Florida and you've kind of been all over the place. And now you're this master smith. So can we let's hear some of your story. How did you get into all of this? Well, yeah, I mean, it was, you know, I'd been working since I was young. And when we moved out of Idaho, it was in 1980. And I moved back down to the Bay Area, uh, San Francisco Bay Area in California. And my grandfather, who he was from Peru, he was a metal worker. I had uncles that all had body shops, um, at least three. And so being a young, you know, 15-year-old kid, I got to working with metal and doing a lot of stuff like that. And just seeing him and the skill set 
he had. I mean, it was old world skill set. And sure. that kind of got me on the path of, of working with metal. So I, you know, I became a body man and I painted cars and did that for 12 years. And then, you know, in the course of that, you know, getting married and not wanting to raise a child in the Bay Area, we moved to Washington. And then, you know, I had different businesses and one of them brought me to finally to Arizona and then down to Florida. And that's when I met Cliff Parker. Uh, we got my son and I were working together and I got rained out. So I went to a Barnes and Noble and I was looking at, you know, a knife magazine. <clears throat> and at that time, I was kind of hoping to get some type of craft I could do at home with my son and or just for my own interests. Um, and so I started making longbows and recurves, you know, because oh, uh, I shoot longbows and recurves. Yeah, and there's a guy that makes custom longbows that I shoot, Wes Wallace, and up in Beaver, uh, was it Beaver Creek, Oregon. And he had like a nine month or a year waiting list. And I thought, man, that's crazy. That's, you know, to have that amount of work. So I started, yeah. you know, getting into it. And then when I read that Blade magazine, I seen Cliff Parker had a little ad in there and he was like five miles away from where I was. So I called him and <clears throat> yeah, I went over there and uh, seen the, the Damascus he was making, these little gentleman folders, and it just blew me away. I was like, how sure. can anybody do that with steel? And that was my first introduction to uh, Damascus and custom knife making. Right. And so, uh, real quick, so this was in early 2000s, if I'm correct, right? That you first met Cliff Parker? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was like 2002, something like that. It was early. Okay. Yeah. And so, you kind of come from a family of of uh of craftspeople um so you you talked about your grandfather and your uncles but your father was a builder and your mother was a seamstress what was it like growing mm -hmm. up around that just seeing them create and make and work with their hands all the time do you think that inspired you at all well i think my dad you know he he made maybe later in life he didn't teach me the things i do but he taught me how to work and he gave me a good work ethic i think that's more important than the you know learning actual skills uh yeah i learned how to build and i learned how to paint houses because he was a house painter and, you know and or had built some houses but <clears throat> my mom was a very talented seamstress she would do this real intricate uh, wedding dresses with the beads and i mean I, you know it was just incredible the uh, work she had so you know being detail oriented was you know, kind of what I was instilled in me when I was young is just this, this ethic of, you know, my dad always preached to me, you do the very best job you possibly can. You'll never have to worry about work. Work will always be there for you. And that that's true. I mean, growing up, having different jobs, you know, like different body shops I went to, I was always, you know, you work hard, you do a good job. And, you know, I was always the foreman or, you know, the, the paint manager or body shop manager when, when I, when I went into a place. So yeah, it helped. Yeah, learning that skill right. set you know yeah it's it's i for anybody young i think one of the things that's really important is to prove early on that you're reliable i think it's amazing how difficult it is to find reliable help or or even when i've when i've worked jobs in different places and being able to rely on the people i work with it's unfortunately hard to come across and so, yeah, but it can early on at any job, 
teach or show that you are reliable and you bust your ass. Because, yeah, I, I, well, one thing I've, I've well, heard before that I always liked is that hard work will always beat out talent. You could be mm -hmm. the most talented person in the world, but if you're not doing anything with it or you're you're half ass, or I guess not. Yeah, I don't know. Just taking taking your time or you're, or, and you're not really you know, doing good customer service. The person who is doing all that stuff that you're not doing is always going to they're going to beat you out. They may not be the best, but they're going to work harder and provide a, a better experience for their customers. And so, yeah, well, I think. Yeah, you know, you see people like that. They're they're incompetent. And if you don't have a good work ethic, it shows. And that was, that was one of the probably the biggest lesson my dad taught me was that. Nobody likes to be around a know-it-all, and you can't learn anything if you know it all. So right. always, you know, listen, listen to older folks, have respect. Uh, somebody that's been there and done that. If you're, you know, somebody wants to show you a technique, a trick, whatever, whatever field you're working in, whether it's painting cars or, um, you know, making knives, and all you do is got your mouth running, you can't learn anything. Sure. So you know, it's it's always good to be humble. Right. So uh, I want to step back to when you were a kid, as you were growing up, before you started, you guys moved to California. Um, and what kind of things did you do uh, as a kid? Well, I mean, did, were, did you build models? Did you build forts? Like what kind of things, like what way did you express your own kind of creative outlet and interest in building and making things? Well, like you, you know, just, have... well, yeah, just work. You know, I was into sports and athletics when I was young, so I wasn't really looking into to making stuff. Uh, my creative years didn't come until, you know, I was, when I got into cars, then, you know, that's, I was the head painter at Mercedes Benz in San Francisco when I was 20, 21. So, yeah. So I was at, at that point, no, I was 22 years old. So at that point that's I had already, <laughs> that's crazy. Well, I'd been in body shops painting cars. You know, me and my dad taught me how to spray, and I knew how to build a little bit. But really, painting houses was what you know I was in charge of when I was. I've been working since I was eleven, and at in Idaho, you get a daylight only driver's license at thirteen. So at thirteen, I had a license, and I ran a crew of three or four guys, uh, and we'd go. He'd send me out on jobs. I'd drive to the job, and I'd line it out, and we'd we'd paint. That's what you know. That's what I did. So I knew how to spray. How did, wait, really quick. How did the customers feel about a 13-year-old showing up and, and running the crew? Well, I mean, that's not great. I love the image of that, but <laughs> I wonder what the I was, customers <laughs> You know, growing up, I, you know, I, I wrestled when I was young. I lifted weights, and I was physically strong. So lifting ladders and picking up five-gallon buckets and all that was, you know, that was just normal to me. And yeah. most of the, most of the, the, there were contractors who worked for, and they all knew me. So I it was see. not, you know, it wasn't an issue of, hey, who's this kid? Right. <clears throat> and, you know, once I, I learned from my dad how to do things and run things, well, then it was, you know, I just, I just, I just did it. It was like breathing, you know, just second nature. And oh, so, yeah, when I learned, when I learned, I took that skill set with me down to, to California when I went into my uncle's shops. Well, naturally, <clears throat> you know, they wanted me to work there because I was a hard working, young Idaho farm kid, you know, as far as they were concerned. Mm -hmm. And it just, I learned quickly. I would stay, I would sweep the shop is where I, I entered. I was pushing a broom and then sure. I became a sander, 
and I would prep cars and I knew how to mask from masking houses. And so my masking skills were on par with everybody else. Oh, nice. And then, um, I knew how to spray, but they wouldn't let me spray anything. So I would stay and watch this old guy. Uh, his name was Maestro. You know, that's all I knew him as. But he had a he had an issue with drinking. So I would, you know, here I am, 15, 16-year-old kid, cleaning the cars, prepping them, getting them ready, going to the spray booth with him and watch him spray. And then he'd let me spray. Well, I get sprayed good. So next thing you know, he's letting me spray the cars and he's hitting the bottle. He's and sitting back yes sitting back watching me spray i can't even tell you how many cars i mean it would be we do three three cars a night four cars a night in a you know they clean out the shop and do these completes and and i would be painting them and you know next day whether even during the school year i would wake up and you know go to school and then after school come to the shop and help clean and prep for the evenings painting and then uh you know this went on for a bit and then he he wouldn't show. He would, you know, he had this, like I said, he had this issue of drinking. And um, so one night, I'm going to say it was probably after six months maybe of me doing this. And my uncle was pretty upset because he wasn't there. We had cars to do. And I was like, well, I've been spraying. I want to just let me spray him. So he suits up and he goes, no, I don't believe you. So we went in the spray booth and he says, show me. And I started spraying and after the first car he's like okay get the rest of these done and that's how i became a painter so this whole time maestro was getting paid for the work you were doing maestro was getting 75 dollars a car now mind you this is back in 1982 one so 75 bucks a car you do three cars a night you know you're making an okay living yeah just for yeah but my uncles they weren't they weren't um they took advantage of the situation because here I am, the pain. I'm thinking, okay, I'm living on my own. I'm, you know, I had, <clears throat> I was taking care of myself, had my own apartment. And oh, wow. yeah, you, you think that, you know, I would get the 75 or at least 50, but they said, okay, well, we're going to pay you 15 bucks a car. And I was, you know, I was pretty upset. You could imagine. I was like, what? I'm working all these, you know, so, yeah. but anyway, that's, you know, you got to pay your dues in life. And that was I looked at it as an opportunity to to advance the skill set I wanted I wanted. And you know, back then, if if you made twenty thousand a year, you could you could live okay. It's not the same as it is, you know, nowadays. Rents weren't the same. Okay, Nothing, sure. and, you know, it wasn't as expensive. But I worked during the daytime and then, you know, for the summer. And then when school came around, I you know, I went to you know, I went to school. I graduated high school living on my own. So it, it can be done. Yeah, that's wild. <clears throat> yeah. So I had one uncle came over and was all, you know, took me aside and was all upset. You're only getting 15 a car. And I go, yeah. He goes, well, I'll pay you 25. I was okay. So I said, see you later. One uncle went over there and made 25. Well, <laughs> he was competing. paying the other guys. He was paying the other guys 75 a car <laughs> as well. You know, so he's getting me a deal at 25. And then once I got to where I was almost out of high school, uh, I did go to work finally for one of my other uncles, but I, I went to work running the shop. I was the manager and, you know, there's probably five guys, six guys working in the shop. And, and then I would do the spot repair, painting fenders and panels and stuff like that. And, you know, you know how it is working for family. So after a while, I'm going to say I was probably, oh, I think I was still 18. 
Um, I thought, well, I'm going to, I got my skill set. I know what I need to do. I'm going to go make some money. And, you know, at this time too, getting out of high school, I had been offered a, a scholarship to wrestle at San Jose state, but. Oh, wow. Yeah. So but I must, wasn't, what's that? You must've been pretty good then. You know, it was, it was what I poured myself into. Yeah. I was, sure. I was, I was good at it. You know, it's physical. I enjoyed it, that type of thing. Um, but I was also a realist, you know, I was, I didn't have the same situation that other kids my age had, you know, I was, if I wanted to eat, I had to work. So my reality was different than others. And so, you know, it's like, I was talking with a, you know, school counselor and my coach, I was like, uh, having somebody give me a, a full ticket that does still, I got to buy food. I got to buy clothes. And I had, you know, literally no support at that point. So I was like, well, I'm going to, you know, I had a job and my job made more than my teachers made. So, you know, at that point, then I was making some, you know, I was making better money by the time I graduated. And I went to work um, at a Volvo dealership. And, and on, you know, that was nice because then all I worked on was Volvos. It was not every car that came in the shop. And, <laughs> and as time went on, I went to work at um, a BMW dealer and then finally up to probably the nicest shop in the Bay area, which was the Mercedes Benz. Were they headhunting you? Were they seeking you out or you kept upgrading your job? Well, it was kind of funny when I was 18, I went to work for the, for the uh, Volvo dealer and I didn't know, I did not want to be a, a painter. I wanted to be a body man um, okay. because you're breathing chemicals and all that. And I enjoyed taking apart the cars and, you know, cutting whole front ends off. I could take and cut a car in half and take another car, cut it in half and put them together. For me, it was, oh, oh man, it was, I, I'm, I was doing major collision. And, you know, I'd been through training through ICAR. I'd been trained through, uh, you know, the Blackhawk frame pulling system. You know, all this, I, I invested in myself. And then when my uncles, once I was, you know, running that one shop, you know, I would go to these, these training sessions. and. Plus, you know, I'm a hands-on guy. If I'm yeah. working and I can see that something's how something's being done, well, then that's, you know, that's the way I learn the best. Book learning is one thing. Actual hands-on is another. So sure. by being able to do that, you know, I was fixing, you know, not just little dings and dents, but I was, you know, major hits. Well, there was two or three of us. I was actually four of us bodymen, five four body men at that Volvo dealer, one, two, three, four, five. And then we had uh, two painters, a painter and a painter's helper. And I'm probably two months into the job and I'm fixing, you know, nice hard hit cars. All the bolts were the same. The clips were the same. You know, it's, unless somebody's worked on a car, it's every car is different. When you're working on the same car, you get fast at it. And, you know, sure. and it was good. And I think at that point I was making 16 bucks an hour. So I'm saying it's 1983. And <clears throat> so it was, you know, it was a good living. It was not bad at the time. Well, yeah. then the, the painter gets into an argument with the owner and he walks out. And so, you know, we're like, oh, okay, wow. That was, it was a big blow up. And the owner comes out of his office with a piece of paper in his hand. He walks up to my stall and he says, Aaron, it says here on your application that you have paint experience. I was like, oh, no, 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 no. I, I want to be a body man. I don't want to do any painting. He goes, well, if you just, could you paint, get us through this week? I'll, I'll get a painter by the end of the week. 
And I was like, oh, okay, all right, well, sh- all right, I, I don't want to, but, you know, I, I protested as best I could as a young man. And I went to the paint shop and I started painting. And <laughs> he comes in on Friday, you know, we had, I'd finished up all the work. And he comes in on Friday, he goes, oh, Aaron, I got great news. He goes, I got a new painter. And I was like, oh, good, because I'm tired of this, you know, this garbage. <laughs> And he goes, yeah. yeah, the new painter is you. And I go, what? No, I ain't doing it. I quit. I said, I quit. I'm not doing this. And he says, well, I'll give you a $4 an hour raise. I was like, dang it. All right, you got your new painter. So I went from 16 yeah, to 20 was, bucks an hour. Yeah, yeah I did it. That raise right there. Yeah. And so, it, you know, that that did it for me. And then, you know, he's kind of a hard guy to get along with. And, yeah. you know, and you always want to make the most you can make. And so I went from there to... Um, he had given me, you know, a couple of raises that year. So I was, I was not making too bad. And then I went back, uh, another friend of mine said, Oh, BMW had just built this huge shop and they need guys. And so I went from there to, you know, making more money. I think it was making 25, 26 an hour there. Sure. And after, oh, I was there probably a year or two. I think it was a year. I was 20, 22, 21, 22. And the manager was, you know, when you're at a dealership, the body shop or the dealership survives because of the product, not because of the skill that the shop has or the manager. I mean, it's, you know, it's not an independent, it's a dealer. So you're kind of got a captive audience of, you know, somebody, you know, they wrecked their BMW, they're going to bring it to the BMW place. And he was kind of, he actually didn't, didn't really know what he was doing. And so we kind of, you know, got into it and there was a, a supplier that was standing right there. And I, at this point, I was the, the paint foreman because I knew I knew what I was doing. I knew how to shoot glass red paint. I was, you know, it's a special type of paint. And, you know, I want to give you all the, the details of, of what it was, but I was very good at what I did. And he wasn't doing things that were going to make it more efficient in the shop. So we had some words and, you know, then he, in a, in a heated moment said, you know, you no longer have a job. And the, uh, the supplier was there. He was like, wait a minute, you mean you just fired Aaron? And he was like, yeah, that's it. You can leave. And so he turns around and says, okay. And he just, he kind of grabs me by the arm. He says, just wait a second. And he lets the manager walk away. And as soon as he walks away, he goes, Aaron, there is a shop in San Francisco that would die to have you. He goes, it's the best shop in the area. He just lays this whole thing out. He goes, I'll call them. He goes, they would have you. He goes, right now. So <laughs> that was, of course, the Mercedes-Benz dealer in San Francisco. And I went over there, and yeah, it was it was a lot more money. And it was, you know, I painted my first car. I was there for a couple of days. I painted the first car. The manager comes out of the, the shop or the spray booth and walks up to me. I was, I'm at the time clock. And sticks out his hand, shakes my hand, and he goes, you will never leave the shop unless you quit, and just walks away. I was like, oh, sweet. You know, so, wow. and I was there, I was there till I, till I left then. That's amazing. Yeah, it was good. It was, but it's all about, you know, it's that work ethic. It doesn't matter what right. I did. My dad didn't teach me how to paint cars, but he taught sure. me how to work, and he taught right. me how to listen, and he taught me how to pay attention, and, you know, when you're, not on drugs you have a valid driver's license and you have a hard work ethic and you try to do the best job you can you will always succeed so and that's that's and that's been true in my life people will vouch for you right yeah. obviously 
the suppliers. <laughs> I was like, I know exactly who wants to hire you. I yeah. love that. That's such a yeah. So I, I didn't miss. I did not miss one day of unemployment. In fact, I don't think I until later, later in life, I don't think I ever had you know collected unemployment. Sure, but that's amazing. This is all. This is still before. 1990. This, if I did the math right, this is about 87 or 88 when you went to the Mercedes. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It was so I had, you know, from 1980, I kind of paid my dues with my uncles until about 85. Maybe not even 85. I was 80. No, it was 83. And then I, when I graduated, I worked for him for a while. Then I, yeah, I went from there to Volvo, BMW, and then Mercedes in 80, 88, I think. And I was there for like three years until we, you know, I got married, had my son. And then I was, there's, I ha- I literally hated being in the city. I hated, you know, the congestion, the, you know, being around, being around people. I grew up in Idaho and Idaho is, you know, country type living is what I was used to. Not seeing the air I breathe and, you know, just, I don't know, unless you, some people love the city. Okay. I get yeah. it. Good for them. I love nature. So I, I couldn't stand being right. there. Well, I'm going to do a quick sponsor. <laughs> I don't know if the segue is perfectly, but if you're going to do body work or sand, hand sand a knife, you're going to need some sandpaper. And in DASA USA, they are the makers of rhino wet sandpaper. And uh, it's, basically some of the best stuff out there we love it and all of us use it and aaron if you want to get some the place to get it is texas farrier supply because if you put in knife talk 10 when you check out you're going to save 10 percent on your purchase uh we were talking before the episode a little bit about sandpaper but anyways <laughs> so again in dasa usa makers of rhino wet best hand sanding paper out there you can get it at texas farrier supply texas Knife Talk 10 at checkout. You're going to save some money. All right. So continuing on, it sounds like you move a little bit, move around a little bit to like to Washington, Arizona, but ultimately it sounds like you end up down in Florida and that's where you start getting into knife making. Are you still doing cars when you get down to Florida? No. Well, sort of. Um, At this point, I had already gone through, you know, uh, when I left Mercedes, I was tired of being in a shop all day. You know, I'd done it for 12 years at that point or 13 years, and my brother was a house painter. And, of course, naturally, you know, I didn't forget how to paint houses. And so we just we started talking about, well, maybe I'll just open a business on my own. And I I left the shop one day, and I walked around my block and knocked on people's doors that had their houses looked like they needed to be painted. And I explained to them who I was. What I what I'm doing currently, I was a car painter, but I'm going to be going opening my business painting houses, and I filled my summer or the next five months uh, worth of work on that afternoon, just walking around the neighborhood talking to people, and so, you know, at that point I got into building, so I left cars cold turkey right there and opened up a house painting business in the Bay Area, and I did phenomenal. It was I did really well on in that. And so it gave us enough money to where, you know, we figured, well, we sell my house because I had bought a house at that point. Um, sell my house and we'll just take our skill set and move to Washington. That's where my wife had her, her family. And so we'd been back and forth a couple of times and we liked it. What part, 
What what part of Washington? Can I ask? Uh, Vancouver. So right across oh. the river from Portland. Sure. So we moved up there and we were there for nine years. And of course, that good work ethic, you know, business was was good at one point. Um, you know, I had 22 employees and, you know, that, that'll kill you quicker than drugs and alcohol is having employees. Gee, many. It was <clears throat> people. That sounds yeah. like a lot of people in charge of. Oh, it was nuts. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and then you have, you know, you get sometimes you'll have dishonest builders and customers and sometimes people didn't pay and, you know, you're running large numbers. You know, we were doing, you know, upwards sometimes of a hundred thousand bucks a month and, and, you know, and, and, and work. And it was, I got to where I hated it. I mean, I mm. literally hated it. money. Didn't matter at that point. You know, it's, you know, if you don't love what you're doing, why do it? And so all I was was just a, a glorified babysitter, really. And, you know, I wasn't, <laughs> I mean, it's true. It's, yeah, I don't it's, it. you know, on average, I always had about 14 employees. And sometimes if you take on a big job, you'd have to pick up others. But yeah. you know, payroll was nuts. And, you know, it was just, I, I hated it. I hated it. And I was looking for, you know, something different to do. Well, there was a friend of mine. That he had, I, this is how bad it got, the stress. Um, I went to a body shop in town and I explained who I was, what my background was. And, you know, the manager and I hit it, hit it off. I told him, I'm, you know, I'm running a business with 12 or 14 guys. I would like yeah. to just get back in a shop and just do, it's not mindless work. But when you do something you know how to do and, you know, I'm not dealing with people. I'm not dealing with yeah, you know, crying women because they picked the wrong color and they can't believe. I mean, I literally had a lady pick out a color who made her house look like a lollipop, and she fell to the oh concrete. And, yeah, she fell down in front of me crying on the concrete because I told her, "Nope, here's your color, here's your number." We went up, held it to the house. I said, "Yep, that's your house." She fell down crying in front of me, and I was oh just like, God. "Oh, this is Did yeah." Like it was from work and come back, and it was a completely different thing. Well, we were we were painting subdivisions, so there was it was you know she picked her cows, her color. This is so yeah. terrible. I I sometimes you just have to be heartless, and you know I I hated being like that. But you know just yeah. just the materials were three to four hundred bucks. So yep. we have this house painted. Neighbors were stopping and telling us, "Hey, stop, stop! What are you doing? You can't paint that house that color." And I'm like, "Hey, look. First off, who are you? The homeowner? No. Okay, well." be on your way because I don't work for you. You know, as as you could imagine, you have to be kind of firm in those situations. And so finally this one lady pulls up and she, you know, I didn't know who she was. I deal with the builder and everything is by numbers. She walks up and she yells, stop, what are you doing? And I thought, okay, here we go. Another neighbor. I go, who are you? And she goes, I'm the owner. This is my house. And so she, she comes up and says, you know, she's crying at this point. One second, let me mute my mic here. And she says, this is the wrong color. And I was like, your, your, your name, I had a paper. Your name is this. Yes, you picked this number. Yes, this color. Yes, okay. Here's my paint chart. I pulled it out, that color. Yep, all right, here's the bucket. We looked at the bucket, and I picked it up and walked over to the house. I was like, that's your color. And she fell down to the ground crying, just bawling. Oh my God. I can't. Yeah. I was like, well, I'm sorry, lady. Yeah. This, you know, why did you call it and say something? I go, what do you mean to do? Call and tell you you have terrible taste? I said, no, that ain't good. I'm, you picked it, not me. You know, if you left it to me, trust me, it wouldn't be this color. 
so she, you know, at that point said, okay, what should we do? And they were running out of money, you know, they're, you know, building this house. And so I told her, well, I'll, I'll leave the house masked. You just pay for the new paint. And, you know, it's going to cost me X amount to have somebody, my guys reshoot it. And I just, you cover my expenses and won't, you know, but I was, I was so done with that type of, you know, drama sure. with work. So this guy, this guy at the body shop, he said, yeah, I'll let you come in and start fixing cars. So I went to work for two days. <laughs> that's, that's all I could take. Cause I had to run a business and, you know, it felt good actually to do a little more body work, but a friend of mine, he was doing leather repair. So fixing cigarette burns and cars and matching colors and fixing panels. And so he sees me at the body shop and, you know, he says, Aaron, what are you doing? You know, I'm like, Oh, it's like, I can't take my work anymore. I mean, I'm about to lose it, you know, dealing with that many employees. He goes, man, you gotta come, just come see what I do. He goes, you would be perfect for this. I was like, okay. The hardest thing in doing that type of work is matching colors because it just takes an eye. It's a skill set you have to learn. And it takes a lot of guys, you know, to match us. A simple color can take them all day. You know, if oh, somebody wow. doing it fast, can, they can do it in an hour. But because I have that skill set, for me, I mean, I literally can match colors in five minutes. It just, you know, with no formula or anything, you just pour your dyes into a, you know, your, your. Crazy. Yeah, well, it's, it's, I've developed it over how many, you know, I didn't learn it then. I yeah. learned it for 12 years. Yeah. For sure. my other work. Oh my God. So the, there was a franchise available to open this business. So I sold my paint business. I sold the construction business and I opened this franchise in Arizona, developed it well, had four or five guys under me in a franchise, sold that. And then there was an opportunity to move to Florida and, you know, we had vacation there and we thought, well, we'll develop a business there and, you know, I'll, I'll open these, a couple of franchises and then get out of there. And we were there exactly two years to the day in Florida. So that's what brought me to Florida. I was opening, you know, I opened that franchise in the Phoenix, Arizona area. And of course, it's 180 degrees in Phoenix. So, you know, working out in the sun all day, I thought, no, I want something a little different. Well, it was even worse moving to Florida because it is so humid down there. That, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I smell like a gym sock. Right? Oh, it, it was fire. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, was, it was terrible. It was terrible. So, but that's when, you know, I was working. My son was, you know, getting older now. And you know, I think he's like 14 at that point. And we, um, we saw, you know, we got rained out every afternoon. You could set your stopwatch three o'clock. It's going to rain. Oh, sure. And so we were in a Barnes and Noble and that's where I picked up Blade Magazine. And, you know, it was cool. It's like my first exposure to, wow, this is really neat, you know, knives. And who doesn't like knives? At that point, I was already starting to make longbows and recurves. And I had some equipment and, you know, I probably made a dozen at that point. And so <clears throat> that's when I got introduced to Cliff Parker. I called him and I was like, hey, so I'm, you know, over here with my son. And do you ever let shop tours? Yeah, come on over. So I went over and I don't know if anybody knows Cliff Parker, but Cliff Parker is a gem. The guy is Oh man, he's hilarious to be around, talk to. He's still making. Kind of like, he's what's that? Is he still making? Yeah, is he, he is. Around? Yes, That's yes, great. he is. He's on Instagram. Cliff Parker Nye is on Instagram, and uh, it's a funny story. I'll tell you when we, you know, about knife making with him. So we get over there, and I see his setup. He has a, a say Mac hammer, his press, and he's making this 
you know, Damascus, these picture mosaics is what he was doing. And I was like, what? So he takes a little blade, he dips it in acid, and it reveals the picture in this blade, this mosaic. And yeah. I was I was so blown away. I was like, okay, look, hey, you know, at this point, you know, I got a little bit of money, and I'm like, I'll, you know, what do you charge for for lessons? I'll be more than happy to pay. And he's like, nope, I ain't gonna teach you nothing. He goes, what you need to do is go get. <laughs> he goes, get get committed. He goes, go buy a grinder, watch every DVD, watch read every book, spend some money, make about ten knives that you throw in the garbage. He goes, and then come back here, and I'll give you some lessons. I was like, wow, okay, you know what? That sounds reasonable because I'm a hands-on guy. You're okay. What do I need to get? And so he tells me what type of grinder to buy. And you know, he was, you know, at that point, at that time, Bader was the the go-to grinder, but he had a Burkinger. I'm like, well, why would you tell me to go get a Bader when you got a Burking? He goes, Well, I'll tell you what, you know, you can exchange the arms easy and all this. And I was like, Yeah, but why would I do that if you have a Burking? He goes, Well, I'll tell you what, go buy the Bader. He goes, I'll trade you my Burking. I was like, oh, okay. Well, you know, that's where the modular, easy, quick change arms, you know, they've really gotten a lot better here in the last number of years. Guys are coming out with fantastic grinders. But back then it was a little more limited, you know, a Wilton square wheel and, you know, that type thing. So I had, that was my introduction. So I came home, told my wife, hey, this is kind of what I want to do. And so I bought a grinder, you know, they're $3,000 or whatever it was for the beta. And I bought a wow. you know, bunch of stuff at that point. Yeah, it was like $2,900. Uh, so I bought my stuff. And then, um, you know, I'm kind of making knives. Well, there was a show, a knife show in Orlando. And I went there. I was like, took my family. We went and looked at the different. It was so blown away by the craftsmanship. I was just like, oh, I've, I've got to learn this. I'm going to learn this, you know. Yeah. And. So there was a uh, older gentleman there named Corbin Newcomb, and we were looking at his knives. They were just single blade, you know, fixed blade knives. Uh, Damascus, a lot of them, just random Damascus. And you know, I was talking with him. Yeah, I bought my grinder, and you know, my introduction to Cliff Parker, and um, you know, I'm going to make knives. So we we chatted for a while, and then we went to the looked at the show, and on our way out the door, he whistles at me. He calls me back over and he goes, man, you seem like a nice guy. He goes, your family, you know, nice family. He goes, you're really going to learn this stuff. And I go, yeah, I am. He goes, well, I'll tell you what. He goes, you come out to Missouri, spend a week with me. He goes, you'll learn more in a week than you will 20 years on your own. I was like, no kidding. I looked at my wife and she goes, oh, go. So we made plans. It's a good woman there. (laughs) Yeah. She's like, oh, no, you got to go do this. I was like, yeah. Well, you know, you're only you're only successful if you have somebody supporting you. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> so I um I you know later in the summer my son and I we drove our motor home out to uh to Missouri and parked it there on this property and we made knives from we get up at six in the morning, have breakfast, we made knives till one in the morning for a week solid. Holy we son. went and four oh it was it was un because at that point I was a sponge. I was ready for knowledge. Right. And yeah. Yeah, I'd already made a few knives. I'd grind, you know, I had done everything Cliff Parker told me to do. And yeah. so we went, um, I went, went to his forge, which is not on the property and did the forged up Damascus. And I made a couple billets. My son made a billet. And then we took some of that. I, I forged out probably 15 blades, uh, in that couple days that we were there. I would just, you know, it was a machine, younger and stronger too at the time. So not like I am now. 
And, um, and at this time, you're in your mid thirties, early thirties. Yeah, I'm gonna say, what was I at that point? Maybe thirty four. Okay. Thirty five or older. No, oh, what was I? I can't even remember now. Gosh, how many years ago was that? So that's gonna be what, seventeen <laughs> years ago, uh, mid thirties, let's say at that point. <clears throat> and um, perfect. So we, we, we finished a complete knife. I still have that knife um, in my safe, the first knife that I made there. Uh, that was a real oh, knife because wow. all my other stuff ended up in the garbage can. Or they didn't, you know, they didn't just, you know, didn't know what I was doing. But sure. after that, I was, I, 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 I literally walked away of, from there. <laughs> I, got a, I got a drawer full of uh, F-ups and first times. It's just things <laughs> that just, they were, they're never going to go anywhere. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's that's kind of how things started for me. And then that first knife I made on my own when I got back to my shop. And Corbin, he was, I mean, what a wealth of knowledge. Showed me how to make a sheath, you know, everything. Right. We went, you know, top to bottom, front to back on an, on a knife and heat treating and, you know, different things like that. And I was, I was ripe for the learning. You know, I have guys now that want to come to my shop and what do you have? Well, I don't. I don't have anything, you know, you know, I have a grinder. They don't have, and I was like, okay, well, the lesson that Cliff taught me is, has been a good lesson all through life. Sure. And I tell everybody that go spend your money. It take, it costs money to get a knife shop set up. So sure. go spend your money, get your stuff together, learn these things. And that way you're not wasting my time and your own time. And right. so it's, well, especially <clears throat> if you're going to try to get really serious about it. I I, th- I think there are plenty of people who want to like dip their toe in because they watch Forged and Fire or something like that. And there are a lot of places that teach classes. But I think 100%, if you think you're going to get serious, you really got to spend some money for sure. Yeah, I mean, just, you know, you think about the cost of a grinder, they're 3000 to $5,000. And I got four of them in my shop, you know, or five. Well, it's not counting horizontal and disc grinders. So, you know, there's, you know, there's a bunch of money in there. <clears throat> Yeah, that up. So the, you know, then I, I, I made my first knife on my own and I took it over to Cliff's shop because at this point we were getting ready to move back to California. Um, I had sold off a couple of the, the franchises there and I was ready to roll. And so he looks at the first knife I made and, it, you know, I won't say what Cliff said, but it was, it was pretty funny. My son was there and it was, uh, you know, a little bit on the vulgar side, but, sure. uh, <laughs> You know, he said, you know, he, I could get four seventy five for that knife, and I was like, "What? That's crazy. That's a lot of money." So, you know, he said, "There's nothing more I can teach you." He goes, "All you got to do is keep doing what you're doing. Whatever you did, he goes, just keep sure. doing this, keep practicing it, and then learning the nuances. And sure. you know, once you get equipment, then you can start forging." And so I like, okay, I bought a, a my forge from him. It was a Mankel three burner. That thing was a, okay. yeah, it was a propane drinking flamethrower burn your eyebrows <laughs> off five feet away and walk in front of that thing it was, was oh, you know wow. blown yeah it was it was a it was a hot it was a hot forge so Holy when we uh so that i went you know that first knife how do you sell a knife first off you can make one fine but how do you sell it so i went to a, a gun store in town and and i showed him and he goes oh, i probably get 475 for this knife i was like wow that's exactly what cliff parker said so i left it there and I think it was either that afternoon I was driving. He calls me and says, Hey, your knife sold. I was like, wow, that fast. He goes, yep. So that was my, my first sale. And wow. 
I thought, you know, at that point I'm working, I'm making a living. So I, everything I made from knives, I just put back into, you know, materials, uh, you know, hand, I got wood for days. I got, you know, my stag, you know, everything costs money. So I just, everything I sold at that point, I just put it back in knife making. And then we, you know, we moved to California and that was, I think that was 2003. And at that point I had made probably 20 or 30 knives. And one thing that Corbin taught me young, you know, starting in, in this was that he had numbered his knives. I go, well, that's pretty cool. Put a serial number on them. Well, I said, the first 10 are, you know, garbage, but I'm going to start my first knife. So I, I started numbering my knives and my early ones. They look, I look back on them now. I was like, wow, that's, that's pretty, <laughs> be pretty beginner. But you know, when they, <laughs> when we, you know, now that I'm, I'm thinking I'm up to, and I only number, I don't love number my folders. I don't number my kitchen knives. I don't number um, anything like that. It's only my forged knives. So if I make a, you know, like my, basically like a, you know, a belt knife or a water jet production knife or, you know, something like that. I don't, I don't number all those. It's only the forged ones that I do. And right. like I said, my, my culinaries, I don't number those as either, but I'm up to 700 and, 20 or something oh, like that right now and that's just the four yeah so it's and that Holy just so for, yeah then, no culinary probably at least three times that or at least twice that oh yeah oh yeah at least that because there's you know a bunch of production stuff i never or my culinary stuff i'd ever remember and then you know folding knives as well i'm sorry i didn't know that you played the guitar yeah <laughs> yeah somebody trying to get in touch with me huh sorry about that oh you're good you're good <laughs> really quick uh so you were talking about grinders uh and you're pretty loaded up are are any of them happen to be a broadback grinder are you planning no, but on I, getting <laughs> <grinders>? <laughs> uh, but i have seen those and i have grinder envy that is a nice looking grinder it's a damn good machine, and I, I'll tell you, one of the things that's so cool about the Broadbacks is not only do they have that 90-degree 90, 90 pivot, but they, they've, Vince and Ryan have done a lot of work to make, um, make that one machine as versatile as possible, to make it your surface grinder, to make it your buffing machine, to use it, it to have all kinds of attachments, like uh, the slack belt attachment, small wheel attachment, integral grinding attachment, to help just economize the space that you've got. And what's great about their pricing is they're pretty fair. It's amazing that you can still get one of their full setups for just, I think it's just around $5,000, maybe just under $5,000. And I mean, that's basically five or six machines in one. Um, and then they're coming out with more stuff all the time. And they're always kind of like tinkering and coming up with new ideas. And uh, everybody's always giving them great feedback too. I was actually just talking to Vince the other day, uh, yesterday, and he was talking about how, you know, it, they create a platen. Or, or, or an attachment for with one idea in mind, and then they see how somebody else is using it, and they're like, holy shit, I didn't even really think about that. And so they're always coming up with cool stuff. Um, the pricing, the way they've built their pricing is so that the shipping is actually included. So there isn't any kind of mysterious, like couple hundred dollars of extra shipping on top of it. It's just all, all in one thing. And they've actually been working also on a flat rate deal for shipping to Canada to help 
uh, kind of economize uh, the cost of shipping to Canada too. So if you go to broadbeckironworks.com and you also type in Knife Talk 10, uh, you'll save actually an, an additional 10%, which on a $5,000 uh, machine, if you get the whole setup, that's 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 a few extra bucks that you can turn around and either buy more equipment or just put back in the bank. So go check out Broadbeck Ironworks, put in Knife Talk 10 and save yourself 10%. And yeah, they're a great machine. They're really awesome. And the guys are super, they're very, uh, they're very hands-on. That's what's great about Broadbeck and being them being such a small company is, is uh, they're happy to reach, they're easy to get a hold of, they're easy to get feedback from or to answer any questions. And they're really, you know, they really want to get the best product out there to help knife makers do the best work they can and anything they can do to support you. They're there to do that. So thanks to those guys. And yeah, if you, if you're looking to upgrade, um, your machine, Aaron, or invest in another one, I, I would definitely <laughs> look at the broadbacks because they, they're just so versatile. And what's also great about their tool arms, they're super smart about the way they've done the machines is that you can use the tool arms across different chassis. So say you already have you, it sounds like you already have machines, but you want to get a hold of some of their tool arms. Uh, if they accept an inch and a half tool arm, then you can use that tool arm in whatever chassis you got. Um, and they're also working, I was talking with Vince the other day, they're they're also working with trying to figure out how to also do the one and a quarter inch, with, which I think is what the baiters take um, so that they can also be used on baiter machines. So, so are, they, are they steel or are they aluminum arms? They are aluminum arms. Oh my goodness, nice. that makes such a difference because on the baiter, <laughs> it's steel. Yeah. And those things yeah. are... That pinch your fingers, they're heavy. Yeah, aluminum's way better. And yeah. Yeah, those are quite the I mean, machines. Yeah, right there. If from the steel to aluminum, you're probably saving yourself at least five pounds. <laughs> it's crazy. Oh, probably, probably way more than that. Just just on the bar. Yeah. 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 They're great machines. So you're in California. Is this Redding, California now? Yeah, Redding, California. So Redding, California is like living in you know, any other country uh setting uh it's like living sure. in idaho or used to be um sure and then did it, i ever you know, tell you just... that I, I lived in reading oh you're kidding when? when i don't know i was a little kid but my mom my mom grew up in reading for a little bit uh while her dad taught uh taught what did he talk he taught in agriculture at the local community college for a little while oh, shasta college was... yeah shasta Collins. that's it yeah and I right, so... right across the road from it nice so yeah so when i after i was born we lived there for just a little bit before moving on we moved a lot of places but that was one of them anyhow so you're in uh, you're in redding california you're on the path you you've sold your previous businesses by the way i'm i didn't realize how entrepreneurial you were you you are like, like it's it's i feel like i'm like as you're telling the story you're doing an awesome job telling the story but i feel like i'm watching like this documentary of your life and all the the trials and hard work you've gone through to get to where you're at it's pretty incredible um and just being able to say you're going to do something and just doing it and i think that's that's really impressive i think anymore these days that's a skill it's not uh as well as a talent but it's i feel like it's hard for people to to really like just be that decisive you know 
Well, it's, you know, it's always going to be risk when, no matter what you're doing. Yeah. And it, it, you do have to have a certain amount of fallback on uh, to do that. You know, I, I was fortunate. I had a skill set that I could go back to a body shop if I needed to, but yeah. You know, and then you have to have the support of your wife at this, you know, during this time too, my wife had done, you know, she was really not working. She was raising the kids, uh, but she had developed her own skills. Uh, she became a nutritionist and she became a reflexologist and, you know, uh, she was a naturopath and, you know, an herbologist and all that. So she had worked in a, um, like a health foods type of place where they sold herbs and you know, that was kind of her, her thing. And, you know, as a reflexologist, she made good money doing that. So that, you know, it's nice to have some extra income, but it wasn't needed Absolutely. money. You know what I'm saying? At, at that point. Sure. And, and so that always helps because there's, you know, times where things get a little tight and, you know, when you have an extra, you have a support system, uh, you right. can do things. And she was always hundred percent behind, you know, whatever I was going to get into. So, you know, that, that was good. Right. Sure. Well, and I'm sure you support her in the same way. Oh, of course. Yeah. No, whatever. Yeah. yeah. It's who doesn't, right? It's a partnership. It is. It is. For us, it's like a 33 year <laughs> partnership right now. So, yeah. Wow. It's impressive. Nice. And so when you get to Reading, uh, do you have, do you have a hammer or any of that stuff yet? Or no, what do you work? No. What so I have, or, I have just, what do you do with your I just have my minimal stuff. We, we get there and I, you know, I, <clears throat> I bought some property and because I have built houses in the past, I, I still, I'm doing the leather repair thing in, in Reading. And, sure. <clears throat> you know, it's, it's, it was a good business because my overhead was very low, like 3%. And, you know, it was, I enjoyed it. Every time you fix something, you get the accolades of, oh my gosh, you're a magician. And, Wow, sure. <laughs> the work really looks great. You know, that's that's always enjoyable, yeah. and the money was good. You know, the money was was really good, and you know, but at this point, we needed a house, and <clears throat> so I have the skills to build. I had built houses in in Washington, and so at that point, I applied for. In California, you got to get a general contractor's license. A little more difficult, but I still had contacts in Washington where I had done, you know, some major type stuff you know work and so i had my contractors i'd worked for before vouch for me sure. and I, you had to set up appointment date and go take the state test it's a little bit of a procedure to get that state test done and so i got my general contractor's license and i built my own house i built my house and then i figured well you know i'm while i'm doing this i'm running this leather business and I might as well build a spec house. So I built a, you know, I started building spec houses and then my son was old enough that I could start showing him. He was kind of taking over the leather business at that point. We were working together, building houses and doing that. And I needed a hammer and I needed a hydraulic press. So, you know, I, it, it's hard to find them now. I couldn't find it at all then. I mean, it's where do you get any sure. of this stuff? Right. And so there was, um, a blueprint on the, at that point, I had already joined the ABS. Um, I think it was 2004 or five. I joined, and I, I had heard about a hammer ins and I went down to Vesalia. I met Mike Venino and that's, that was when I, my learning really started to take off. 
So at that point on the ABS site, when I signed up, they had a, a book on how to build a, um, a Kenyan air hammer, I think was the name of it, and a, a hydraulic press. So I just went down to the steel place in town. This is what I need to do here. Just here's the pieces. I drew everything out how I wanted it based on that, that, um, that drawing in that, that book I bought. Yeah. And they, you know, cut all the pieces out. I made things a little thicker, a little bigger. They threaded them and I just went and picked up all the steel and, you know, and since I, you know, had a welder and I'd done, you know, metal work, um, I built my, my air hammer and built it, mocked it up, cleaned it, took it apart, painted it, put it back together. And I still use it to this day. It is awesome. Uh, for, for small, say, did I... for small work. Sure. Did I see you using that on your Instagram recently? I feel like you posted about that recently. So I use that hammer for mostly my light work, like drawing out the tangs, tapering the blades, uh, that type of stuff. I mean, it, I can move a billet, like say if I'm going to forge a billet, but once I built my my hydraulic press, of course, that does the lion's portion of sure. my forging. Um, but it even with that hammer and my hydraulic press, you know, I, I built the press off those blueprints and I went into town. There was a hydraulics place in town. I ex explained them what I was doing and they put together a, a heavy duty unit that powers my hydraulic press. But even with all that, um, you know, to draw out a billet, it took, man, six, seven heats and maybe three hours to draw out a bar, uh, sure. even with that setup, because yeah. it's just so light. And it wasn't until later um, I bought my you know uh, chambersburg 2ch hammer and what used to take me three hours with a hydraulic press and my small hammer i can literally do in one minute with my oh, chambersburg oh my what a difference yeah yeah I, I man i am not kidding you i can draw out and i have done it i mean i, I like to use two or three heats because you know the there sure. are three cardinal rules when you forge damascus get it hot work it hot and keep it hot Sure. And if you keep it hot, those three those three categories, you get you're successful with uh, with getting your Damascus together. So I, I try to use two or three heats, two heats at least with my Chambersburg. But typically, I can draw out a bar in, yeah, I mean, literally a minute. It's crazy how good that thing works. Sure. But uh, how have so what's that, the weight of that ram head then? Is that a two hundred pound? Yeah, that's a two hundred pounder. And so I've heard varying. You know, people explain what it hits like. I've heard it hit it hits like a thousand pounds, or I've heard it hits like two thousand pounds. Um, I it's very rare I ever put my foot all the way down on the gas pedal because it sure. it does hit so it hits so hard it can blow apart a, a billet. Um, so I kind of feather it, you know, but it hits as hard as I need it to hit on any size yeah. billet. I mean, I did one the other day that was so. It's so big. I had to split it. I had to split the bit. It must have weighed thirty pounds, twenty-seven. I think somebody said that. I believe it. Were you using a gantry to <laughs> get it open? Oh <laughs> well, man, my arms. Jesus, like going back to the gym again, right after being <laughs> COVIDed for so long. So I, I ran, I ran it in there, and it drew it out to where uh, I couldn't fit it, you know, lengthwise in my forge anymore in one heat. Oh, yeah, sure. It forge yeah. welded together. So. And then I split that into two 15 pound, you know, billets. But at any rate, that's incredible. You know, just, it, it would barely fit in the mouth of the forge. 
Sure. My my buddy Will Brigham, he just got a hold of a 200-pound Chambersburg. Uh, I think it was a couple of years ago. And uh, he had just got it running when I came and visited him. And he'd never really used a power hammer before. So I kind of showed him how I forge a blade out on a on a and i'm used to using like a like a 110 samax so i hadn't used the 200 pounder and it he had cleaned it up and got it really nicely dialed in and that thing so max it is mm -hmm. it hits hard and so it and it his sweet spot on his was like when you push the treadle down i think maybe four inches or five and so not all the way down but it's like there's a sweet spot you hit and it's just whapping so hard. I was like, okay, I guess I got to dial because we did, we also did some billet forging too. And it was amazing how hard that thing hit. But um, yeah, 200, if I were to get a power hammer, 200 would probably be the max. Cause beyond that, I mean, for the kind of, I guess more than anything for the size of material that we're working, you know, I don't know if you need much more than that. The big hammers are really cool, but that's it's a lot of well, they're, they're harder I, to run yeah well they have yeah. you know they take like in my new shop i got you know i just built here this last year i have three phase power oh, yeah. too congratulations on that by the way oh man let me tell you it was i i i had been on other property where i had you know nice nice shops but this one is the first one you know i built it from the ground up and you know i have three phase power so i can get whatever equipment i want but you know as far as the hammer goes yeah, I, I don't think, you know, the, the mine's a one piece, so my foundation only had to be two feet deep, whereas some of them, you know, you're talking a four or five foot foundation, a lot oh, of yeah. work, a lot of excavation, yeah. you know, goes into just getting the hammer set up, whereas my hammer was, I dug up, when I poured my concrete, I dug a couple areas that were two feet, at least two feet deep, if I ever want to get another hammer, and then... Mm. You know, I poured it, set my hammer on, plugged it in, and I'm, you know, bolted it down, and I'm ready to go. So it was, it was fairly, fairly uh, easy to get set up. Awesome, that's really awesome. Um, let's step back to so you're in Reading, you you're making knives. You've met Mike Venino, who's an incredibly talented folder maker. Uh, I've only met him, I believe, once ever, but he was always a really nice guy. Anytime I chatted with him. Um, and so well, are you on the, on the, or sorry, go ahead. Well, I'll say at that, at that point, I joined the ABS. I went to this right. hammer in, I met, you know, that's where I was introduced. Tim Hancock taught there. Um, and a lot of the technique that I use to this day is, is Tim Hancock inspired. Tim taught Mike Venino and right. everything that, you know, I have learned really is, from that source i mean i you you pick up and learn from a lot of different other you know makers uh there's some really talented makers that have had a big influence on me and i hope i don't miss anybody out there but you know bill burke uh rick dunkerley uh tom ferry and i don't know if many people in the knife world you know know him he doesn't get a lot of publicity he's probably one of the best damascus makers i've ever met uh he uh, was foxtrot knives on instagram right yeah yeah. And yeah, he does acrylic paintings now and he does other artistry and he does, you know, engraving, but my goodness, his, his Damascus skills are, they're off the charts, but yeah. you know, Rick Dunkerley, um, you know, John Christensen, Shane oh, Taylor, yeah. you know, all these guys uh, sure. contributed a lot to, 
to my growth. You know, you go and I, and it's like I tell everybody, the best growth you're ever going to get is when you go to these hammer-ins and you're talking, there's a wealth of knowledge. There is, I don't know how many hundreds of years of, of master smiths standing there ready to, to share information with you. And if you walk away with one nugget, oh, it, it makes the whole trip worth, oh, totally worth it. It's just unbelievable. So. Well, it's like when, uh, what Corbin was saying to you when you first met him that, you know, you spend a week with him, you'll learn more with him in a week than it would take 20 years for you to learn. And, you you know, uh, you at a hammer and I don't think you get that depth of information, but you do make those connections with people. And I think that's another big opportunity is to create those relationships so that, you know, if you do have a question, you can give Aaron Wilburn a call and because you guys have actually met face to face and you've had, and I mean, that's why I feel comfortable. I could reach out to you is because we've actually met face to face. We've got, we get along. And so, uh, I, and I know I, at least I feel pretty confident if I have a question about anything, uh, and I feel like you can possibly help me answer that question, then I'm going to try to reach out to you. And I feel pretty good that you're going to give me a call, but just like that, that opportunity to network and connect and create those relationships, um, that do kind of snowball into a growth of information and knowledge and skill is really valuable at those hammer ends as well. Yeah, because you're, you know, you, they may be discussing stuff like Bob Kramer, for example, um, was, you know, taught at a hammer in a uh, couple times. And, you know, I would spend time talking with Bob and because I had already done all this research, put all this, inf- this effort into heat treating and my blade, the steels I was working with. And to have a conversation with Bob and have him confirm my my findings as well was invaluable. And then he would tell me a couple different tricks, or, you know, about, you know, how to heat treat and subcritical soaking and all this other stuff. And it just, it, you know, just up my game completely. And so, you know, everybody has contributed to where I am and growth wise. Um, Bob has, you know, like I said, Bill Burke has, uh, Rick Dunkerley, especially, because um, I've, you know, I've gone up there to hammer ins. I've taught at his hammer ins. I've spent time, paid him to teach, you know, stay at his shop and teach and, or, or teach me, you know. And right. that's another thing, too, is I have spent money. You know, I've gone to Arkansas to the bladesmithing school there and learned how to make folders just just for my own edification. You know, I could have sure. done that at somebody's shop, but I wanted to see what the ABS school was like there in Washington, Arkansas. So I did that. I've been, you know, to Mike Veninos, Rick Dunkerley's. I've I've been all over really learning how to uh, to learn from Mastersmith. It's worth once you're at a certain point, you're only going to get out of it what you can you know, you put into yourself. And so I have paid and spent money and time at Mastersmith shops to learn. And every time I've gone, it's been profitable as well. You know, for, you know, for example, you know, I won't say what Rick charged me because it was way greatly discounted. All I needed was basically we spent, we basically needed two days, but I, he had taught me how to make some Persian ribbon Damascus and I saved some for a folder. And, you know, it was, it wasn't it wasn't a whole lot of money to to have him show me how to make a folder but i come back and i finished it in my my shop the next i think i spent a day on it and you know a customer of mine wanted it and i think i sold it for i don't know two thousand dollars for that folder so whatever little bit of money i gave to him it was minuscule compared to what i got out of it the education 
and I made money on the knife. So, you know, it's, it's worth it when you go and do these type of things. So, and I've done that with, like I said, Mike Venino and different, different other ones as well. Absolutely. Yeah. I remember, what was it? Yeah, Andrew Mears. Uh, when I first mm-hmm. met him at the Seattle International Knife Show, he was having some trouble with kind of the action of his folding knife. And actually, Rick Dunkerley helped him, gave him some pointers. And and um, and the next year, I think he had the exact same knife, but it opened completely differently. It was like a, a whole different knife. Um, and just, yeah, and it's those those connections, those relationships, huge in this, in this trade. And, I, you know, you hear people say it, thousands of times but just the, the willingness to share and to help each other out it's 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 a brotherhood and, and a family and a community in a way that you feel like you know we appreciate each other's struggle <laughs> kind of and so we want to try to help each other out and also you know in more and more in this connected age we realize like the market of people who are interested in buying high-end chef's knives or folding knives or whatever knives is gigantic now compared to what it used to be, uh, which I want to get into with you later. Um, Mm -hmm. Just about like knife shows and stuff like that. But when, when you, when did you know that you wanted to become a master Smith or when did you want to become a journeyman Smith in the ABS? Was it as you were joining, you were like, I'm going to become a master Smith. Well, no, it was more, you know, once I, once I joined the ABS, I did it for, you know, mind you, I had other businesses. I was building houses right. and I, had, so it wasn't for the money. I wanted it for my own edification and to just advance the, the skill set I was learning. Uh, the bonus would be, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm selling knives. But as I started learning and I, I recognized, oh, hey, this is, this is a wealth of knowledge being part of this ABS. And if, if you take advantage of it, if you go to the schools, if you, you know, do the research and then put the application in. But at a certain point, I thought, you know, man, okay, being a journeyman, passing the test, and then having, you know, master smiths scrutinize five knives that you make, you know, that's kind of a gut check in itself because it's, is it objective? You hope they are. Imagine. Yeah. <laughs> because what you might like and what you think is good, your good work, it may not jive, you know? So you have to be... Right. You have to be humble enough to take it to a master smith and say, critique my work. Because I've had guys do that to me here. You know, they tell me, we, I, you know, I hear my knives are good and I don't want to hear that. I want to hear a critique. So I'll give them a critique and, and the response is, well, that's just the way I make them. Okay. Then don't waste, <laughs> then don't waste my time, you know? Yeah, no shit. Oh, my God. For me, for me, that is... You know, that it gets back to being humble. You know, another synonym right. for humility is teachable. And so right. if you're not, if you know it all and you can't be taught, then it's, you're wasting your time and whoever else's time you're wasting asking questions. Just So I would go and, and Mike Venino was, he was very good that way with me. Because Mike is, you know, he's a teacher. The guy knows how to teach. Right. And he would, you know, give me some criticism. Okay. And then I would make these adjustments. And, you know, when I first started out, I didn't want to follow a pattern. I didn't want to, you know, I thought, oh, Skagel's knives didn't look like they followed a pattern. Neither did, you know, Moran and some others. And I'm just going to make free form, whatever comes off the anvil. That's how I made it. And, and that's how they looked. And it was later on that I started, no, I'm going to stay with more traditional 
look. And because the ABS, they have parameters sure. and they, you know, very specific of what they're looking for. It's, it's about a forged big blade is really what it is. Yeah. And, well, and you may, you may be following a form, but I'm, I swear anytime I see your knife, I can tell it's your knife without even seeing your name. You have your own flair that you add to it in your own style. You follow the form, but you make it your own at the same time. You know, it's, it's funny you say that because I've heard that from Rick Dunkerley. I've heard that from others. Oh, I could pick Aaron's knife out and in a whole sea of knives. I'm like, wow. Because when I first started out, I didn't feel like I had my own style or my own form. I, sure. I just, you know, I kind of, everybody does. Everybody puts their fingerprint on their own knife. Right. And for mine, as I developed my skills, my my look kind of developed on its own as well. So it's it's not something that I planned for or anything like that. I just, I make my knife, like I can pick out a David Lish or I can pick out a Mike Quisenberry. I can pick out, you know, you're yeah. talking top makers and I, I know their style. It It's everybody, as you develop your skill set, it, it comes up. Um, and so, you know, with joining the ABS, I really thought, I guess I was probably into it two or three years. And and then I thought, oh man, I can, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna apply to be a journeyman. I think I can pass this. Oh wow! Okay. And so, you know, it was at that point, it was 2006 or seven, maybe. And I, you know, I'm, you know, business at that point when the economy tanked, um, it was I didn't ha I was too busy spending my time, you know, running other things. And you know, it was like when the economy tanked in 2008. It was like the it was like the water got turned off, the faucet got shut off as far as work for me. So I was working, but now I had a lot more time because, you know, I wasn't building houses. My my leather franchise business was, you know, it was, car dealerships were closing right and left. So that was the majority of my work. But I had more time. So I spent my time in my shop. My knives were selling. So my wife and I were talking. I was like, man, maybe maybe this is something that can happen. So I applied to be a journeyman in 2000, I think it was 2010 when I became a journeyman. So, you know, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a expense because you have to make these knives. You can't sell them. You have to, right. you know, you, you make at least six knives. I had to drive down. It's an eight hour drive to Visalia, California, from where I lived uh, to have Mike Venino. He was the only master smith close enough to me. Oh, to, really? To, oh, wow. Yeah. So sure. it was, it's like, not like there was anybody around me. And then, um, you know, to do the testing, have him look at my knives and then do the performance tests. And I had earlier that summer, we had a hammer in. I brought, you know, one or two showed him what I was going to do. And then later on, you know, that year I prepared the knives I was going to take to the, to test and, you know, and Mike, you know, he was very helpful and he's, you know, you do your performance test. He goes, make about three knives break them and make one so that it finally passes. And then you copy that and make that for your performance test knife. That way you, you don't drive all the way down here and fail. So yeah. that was good advice. I had made several performance tests. You know, it's, it's a, it's a knife you're going to make for a specific test. It's not exactly how you make every single knife. And, but you incorporate what I found is all those little techniques that the ABS wanted it every time I impl uh, uh, applied that to my own knife making it up my game, my knives got better. They just looked better. Right. They felt better. 
And so by the time I applied to be, you know, that journeyman, I passed the, I passed the performance test, you know, that's a gut check. And then when you go down to Atlanta, <laughs> yeah, you know, that's a sleepless night. And, you know, I, when I became a journeyman, I was, I think 14 in that class and it was myself, David Lish, Mike Quisenberry and Kyle Royer, where we became journeymen at the same time. And, you know, at that point, I'm, you know, I'm not a real big YouTuber, wasn't on the internet, that type of thing. And, sure. you know, Kyle, Kyle Royer, he won the George Peck Award, which is the best knife submitted by uh, an applicant for a journeyman smith. Right. And, you know, then I'm, I'm, rec- you know, I'm recognized, wow, there's a lot of good makers out here. Well, two years later, he becomes a master smith. Uh, and so 2013, I, I was ready to do it. I mean, at this point I had, you know, got back into, I had done some little bit of remodeling. I turned my, my leather business over to my son and I was making knives and I wanted to make the switch to going full time because things were selling. And that, that's another thing too, is when I became a journeyman, I mean, I, I, the first show I went to, I think in Atlanta was 2006. I think I brought like 12 knives or 13. I sold out. Oh, wow. And oh, nice. yeah, so it was, you know, that's good support. Spent all the yeah. money on handle material. And, <laughs> and so when I became a journeyman, same thing, everything yeah. sold out. But at that point, that's when I was introduced to different vendors like uh, Daniel O'Malley at Blade Gallery. Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, huge huge help from my career was being introduced to him because you know how do you price your knives and all i made was skinners and my you know my bigger buoys at that point he would look at my knives before that he wouldn't look at it it was i you know i was introduced to him and okay he goes yeah now that you're a journeyman there's a whole world of collectors that will buy your stuff because you're a journeyman i was like oh okay well i had no idea and So he kind of started establishing a price, you know, point for my skinners and that type of stuff. And the prices started coming up from there. And I was, if I made something, I would call him, you know, he, he sells them. So he sees knives and I was like, what, what do I need to do? What do you think about this? Or he'd give me some pointers. Okay. That's what I would do. That's when I started getting into, uh, um, making culinary knives as well. And, absolutely. and Daniel was instrumental in telling me. No, he sent me a knife back. Said, "No, this thing's, it's not a buoy. It's a, it's a kitchen knife. It has yeah. to be thin, you know, thin for the win." And okay, so I would, you know, reground it, redid the whole thing, sent it back. He was, yeah, this is what we're looking for, and they would sell. And so, you know, that's a little bit of positive affirmation of your work. Well, when I when I was, you know, it's kind of funny as, you know, like I said, work had stopped almost, and I had a still had connections up in. Oregon and a friend of mine, uh, he didn't know how to bid a job. He ran a, a facility services company for, you know, some hospitals and cancer centers and, and different things like that. And they were having these construct, he was giving away a million dollars a year in construction bids. So he had me come up and look at a certain project and you know, yeah. he paid me really good. And so I was, you know, and he had me take over uh, a project and he made me an offer I couldn't refuse. I think I was I was getting 500 a day and my truck, my fuel, a credit card, my place to stay. But I would have to drive up from Reading to oversee this job. So the money was good in, in a time when the economy was really bad. But sure. at that point, I, I wanted to 
I wanted to break away from that. I wanted to just go full-time knife making. Well, <clears throat> you know, in order for me to do that, when you get your master smith stamp, it it does open up a whole new clientele that that's all they right. want to do is collect master smith stuff. Right. And at that point I I kind of I felt like my Damascus was really good. Um but you know, I my skill set on my actual making of the knives, I was just entering that I think my stuff could look like, you know, Tim Hancock's or it was, it was getting better, but yet my own look, I didn't want to be a copycat. I wanted to do right. what they did, but me. And it was 2000, just getting into 2012. So I had, you know, the resources to where I, I quit that job for him. I finished up what I was doing. I was like, no, I spent the next two months. I think it took me three months, maybe. Cause it's, you know, like I said, each one of these knives are very, intricate fancy and i would have at least five to seven days in each knife and you have to have six or seven knives because what if something happens to one of them sure and so i i had that time dedicated i i drove down i did exactly 30 days before i was testing for master smith i drove down to mike Venino's, and we you have a window of 30 days before uh atlanta to get the performance test done so right. I drove down there. I did the performance test. And, you know, it's, it's kind of subjective, too, because whoever does your Mastersmith test, the, the parameters are chop through a, a two-by-four twice. That's one of them. Well, he, he had some dried-out piece of oak. <laughs> oh, my two God. By, <laughs> Two-by-six two by in his backyard. Shit. And he goes, start hacking on this. I'll bring you water. I was like, what the heck? Oh my god. You didn't bring your own sticks? <laughs> no, I didn't. I should have brought some, you know, soft pine or something to cut through this. Whoa, so he gives me this board. Oh, I'm out there. Oh my god. All right. So go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> so yeah, so he literally had to bring me water. I'm sweating. I'm like, I got a break. I need a break, man. My arm was it was the wood was gray. It was so weathered and hard. Yeah. And I had to chop through this two by six twice. And I was like, I thought it was supposed to be, you know, I complained naturally. I thought it was supposed to be two by four. Can I just, can we go to Home Depot? He goes, no. He goes, you're, it's my test. He goes, I'm on, you know, I'm the one's going to do it. Oh, okay. All right, Mike, let's, you know, he goes, let's, let's have a challenge, you know, that type of stuff. So we, you know, we laugh and joke. Okay. So I, I chopped through this thing finally. And then he made a video of me doing this, um, the bend test. And I'm, you know, I looked at that thing. I'm way past 90. And there was a little, I uh, made a noise when you, when you bent it, it was like a tick. And I was like, oh, I thought that was the blade. I was like, what was that? And he was like, oh, that's, that's probably the vice. Just keep going, keep going. So we get, you know, done. I'm, I'm like, are we there yet? Because I'm way past 90. You like, keep going. Yeah. And then, okay, he lets it back up. And so it was, it was a good bend. It had a, it looked like the bow. It didn't look like an L, you know, right. when they do that bend test. And um, yeah. so I had... It was kind of, kind of a funny story when I went to go test one of the electricians, like I, I, I was doing this work and they were uh, in, in Lake Oswego. It was a, you know, multi-million dollar home and I was doing some remodel work and these people were very particular. They only wanted one master or a master worker to work on this house. And, and um, so I was doing this work. Well, on that work, I, you know, I can do electrical, I do plumbing. And I was doing uh, this reframing and 
putting stuff in, but it, it, it was getting big. I wanted to be done. So I hired an electrician. Well, the electrician, it, you know, as it turns out, we're talking, I'm telling him, yeah, I'm getting ready to be done with all this. I want to get into knife making. I'm do you know full time. And he's like, Oh really? Yeah. He goes, I have an uncle that's a knife maker. I was like, Oh, what's his name? He goes, Oh, his name is uh, J.R. Cook. <laughs> you gotta be kidding me. I said, J.R. Cook is like legendary in the ABS. So we talked, we you know, laughed about it, ha ha. And on the job, he oh yeah, he said, I wrote my I wrote my uncle told me um that you're a knife maker or whatever. Well, when it goes to when I go to Atlanta, so I finish the job, I do all this, I go to Atlanta. And there's J.R. Cook, and I met him, and we're talking, and I explained to him his his nephew and this whole situation, and he says, so why are you here in Atlanta? And I was like, well, I'm here to test for, to be a master smith. And he goes, oh, okay. He goes, well, we're going to stop talking now. Uh, I go, oh, okay. Uh, he goes, uh, <laughs> because I'm one of your judges. <laughs> I was like, oh, sweet. Yeah, that's all right. So that's good. Yeah, I, you know, and when you do that test, I had Francesca with me, you know, we went together and right. I couldn't sleep the whole night. Uh, you know, I was ready to throw up. I think I had the runs. I, it's cause it's, it's so much <laughs> stress and effort and money sure. to put these things together and then to fail. Like there was two other makers that were, had applied and they pulled their knives. They didn't put them on the table and another maker did put his knives on the table. And you get three three chances to apply for your Master Smith stamp in your lifetime. So you want it to be your best work, and you want it to be the first time. And when they came out of the room, um, it was B.R. Hughes came up to me, and he says, he goes, that is what a Master Smith set is supposed to look like. You Congratulations, you passed. I felt lightheaded. You know, I thought, oh, okay, I'm about to you know, go face first in the carpet out here. And <laughs> so I went in there, and... They were all, you know, talking, uh, talking to me about, you know, the work and James Rodebaugh was there and, oh, Steve Dunn and I can't even remember everybody else. Uh, Peterson was one of them. And of course, J.R. Cook and, you know, one of them says to me, you know, we expect a master smith's Damascus to be at a certain level when they make them. But yours was way higher than, you know, we normally see. And he goes, you know, I've never even heard of you. I was like, well, you're, you're hurting me now. So <laughs> I love it. that's great. Yeah, that was, it was a good story. And so I, I was, we talked about it and, and at that point I had been doing my own leather work and, you know, I had put some effort into it at first. I didn't want to become, I didn't want to do my leather sheath. I was like, you know, you get a little arrogant and you think, oh, I'm, I'm a knife maker. I'm not a sheath maker, but I couldn't, you know, that's a whole nother story getting into all that stuff too. Sure. I, we're doing a podcast. I guess I could say it. You know, I, yeah. I couldn't find, I couldn't find Fair anybody. <laughs> yeah. Well, I couldn't find anybody to do good leather work. So like that first knife I made back in Florida, yeah. I went to the place that makes um, Randall knives. They make the sheaths for Randall's. And I was like, oh, you know, can you make a sheath for this knife? They're like, yeah, but it takes eight months. And I was like, what? You know, it was like 140 bucks in eight months. I was like, oh, no, I need, sorry, thanks, bye. So there was a Tandy leather store. I thought, well, I'll just, you know, Corbin Newcomb showed me how to make a sheath. I'll, I'll just have to make my own, I guess. I went to Tandy leather, and the guy behind the counter, you know, I bought my leather. I figured I'll, I'll see what, you know, make my sheath. And the guy behind the counter asked me if he knew any leather makers. He's like, oh, yeah, I make leather. I make sheaths. And I was like, oh, dude, here, can I, you know, how long would it take you? Oh, it'll take me like three days. So I was like, okay. I dropped it off on 
I think Tuesday. And then I said, I'll, I'll see you on Friday. So I came back Friday and it was only like 30 bucks or 35 bucks for the sheath. And I looked at it. I thanked him for his work. I paid him money. And as I walked out the door, I got outside, I threw it in the garbage can. It was, it was just, it was terrible. It was so elementary and kitty looking. I thought I, I, I went home and I started making my own sheaths. I hated making sheaths. But sure. as I learned the skill, you know, I got I got better at it and then it became more enjoyable. And then my work was, right. you know, then it was good. And actually, I've taught at, at at this point before I became a master smith that year before I taught um, at a hammer in where, where Bob taught, you know, Bob Kramer and yeah. everybody else. You know, they're teaching knife stuff. You know what I teach? Leather making, sheath making. So yeah. that's, you know, that's what I taught that year. Well, at any rate, James Rodebaugh was there, and he was also one of my judges. And so that was kind of nice because then I, you know, I get some accolades from the judges. He was like, hey, Aaron, do you have any sheets that you can show these judges? And I was like, well, you know, I'm, of course, nervous. I'm thinking, well, I, I thought I'm not, whatever you put on the table, you're going to get judged for it. And he's like, yeah, but we're done with judging. Just show them. So I pulled stuff out, and, you know, they they liked my my sheets, but I was—I thought it was a setup at first. I thought, yeah, they're gonna sure. pick apart my sheets or whatever. <laughs> right. <laughs> but anyway, so that's so they asked me if I would leave my my mastersmith set there on the table. He goes, "This is what a mastersmith set is supposed to look like. We want to show this to to somebody else that didn't make it." And I was like, "Oh, I felt I felt terrible because now they're gonna compare his stuff to mine, and you know that's just not fair sometimes." But but hopefully, it, you know, he benefited from it. And, you know, I'll, I'll never say the name of who that was. But okay. <laughs> That's yeah, great. yeah, no, that, would, that would not be that would not be a kindness. So, sure. you know, it was it was nice. Once I got out of there and my my stuff was sold, then then, you know, my knives were selling for. You know, quite a bit of money, those things went for, you know, several thousands of dollars each. And, you know, then it was a new it was a it was there was some people that had come up to me and they were, you know, they just told me, they said flat out, Oh, we love your work. Um, you know, we only collect master Smith stuff. And I think he, he told me, he goes, I have, you know, three to 400 knives in my collection and I like this one. And okay. And, wow. and then they were ready to pay the real money, you know, yeah. for that type of work, which was, was nice. That's incredible. It was, it was nice. I won the BR Hughes award for best knife submitted. Oh, yeah, It wasn't my, yeah, it wasn't my dagger and it wasn't, you know, some of the other fancier ones. It was just a uh, you know, river of fire looking feather sure. uh, buoy that I made, but it it looked clean. It looked really clean. Nice. Well, and if people want to see, I, th I believe you have photographs of these sets on your website, right? Yeah, it's um I think Coop took the the best pick of them, but they're they're there. Yeah, it's wilburnforge.com, correct? Yep. Just as a quick and, note. and yep. Wilburn Forge on Instagram too. Nice. Um, going back to, uh, you were talking about Bob and talking about heat treating and everything. Uh, I, I think you said you use an even kill and I know Bob was using even heat at least when I was working with him and I know I use the even heat and so do the other guys on the show. And if you even, were even heat changed my life, I'll put sure. it that way. Yeah. I mean, if you, if, I, I guarantee you you would vouch for this statement, but if you really want to get serious, 
about knife making, you got to be heat treating your blades yourself. And you got to understand, not just be doing the work and going through the paces, but really understanding. And a lot of that is also experimentation. And the only way you can really do that in a practical way is by having a heat treat oven of your own so that you can, so that you can run these tests and do destruction tests and, 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 you know, if something seems a little chippy after you heat treat it, you can throw it back in the kiln at, at, at a very consistent and reliable temperature and bump it up and you can pull that temper back just a little bit more, you know, and it's just I feel like I, I feel like it, 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 when you were talking earlier uh, about uh, Cliff Parker telling you all this stuff that you need, uh, you know, it, nowadays, if you really want to get serious about knife making, a, a kiln is definitely the only thing that's really going to help you set help set you apart and show that you're serious about uh about your knife making and, and even heat is the way to go and we are actually working i think uh i saw a message from craig the other day we're working on getting you guys on uh, the listeners a deal uh with a uh, somebody who is who had been a previous sponsor of the show so that we can get uh get people a discount on kilns again so with that said, yeah, um, yeah I mean, that, what is your experience with a kiln and 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 how it's really changed your game when it comes to knife making? Well, before that, it was you know the swag technique, uh, scientific wild ass guess is what you're doing. And <laughs> I've never heard that. Yeah, and that's you know that's true. It's that's all it was. Sure. You hear this, uh, you know, bring it up to the certain color. Well, <laughs> that all that changes depends on how bright it is outside, and and I got caught into that. You know, it was. Sure. You know, was my stuff really getting, you know, not just tempered correctly, but was I coming to way past temperature? You know, you get grain growth and all of that. It is probably one of the most important pieces of equipment that I have purchased. If you just do stock removal, let's say you don't do any forging, you would still need, I would still get a, an even heat. And I and I have a uh, another brand as well, but even heat to me, uh, it's the one I use hundred percent of the time. So, yeah. uh, it's just reliable. Uh, they have, it's affordable. It was not that much money for what I, for what you're getting out of it. I mean, at this point, you know, one knife would pay for, you know, a, a kiln like oh, yeah. that, but to be able to bring something up and scientifically know that I'm going to cycle it and refine the grain structure and go through, um, all my normalizing cycles, uh, my subcritical soak, all the stuff that brings total relaxation to you know how it is when you make some intricate damascus especially twist damascus and things like that it it wants to retain warpage in that there's a stress that is you know inherently in there from from forging but uh, yeah when you go through you know the different heat treating processes and you know exactly what temperature you're at and how you know you can bring it to heat normalize subcritical soak and then when you're going to go back to quench you can watch it at time at temperature pull out do your quench and my blades come out i mean it's rare that i have to do any straightening and but i because all the all the stress is out of the blade and that's i'm not kidding you 100 percent because i went to an even heat kiln yep uh, I, it's the same for me i almost never have to deal with warpages um because of my in my heat treating process and the only reason i can do that is because of my even heat kiln mm -hmm. um, let's see all right so you're a master smith now this is 2013 
2014 is actually when I first meet you at the uh, Seattle International Knife Show. Uh, uh-huh. I was really I, that was my first knife show too. I'd never been to any knife shows, even though I'd worked for Bob Kramer before. I never went to any of the hammer ins. Oh, I actually I lied. I had gone to one hammer in at Gary House's place, um, but before that, I hadn't gone to any knife shows of any kind or any other hammer ins. And so, um, and it was it was an interesting show. It was very nervous making to have knives on the table and and have all these very not just uh uh i guess uh attendees walking around but also <laughs> all these knife makers who i knew like like you were talking about jr cook the, having you having the derogers having you know people walking around who know what they're looking at looking at your work uh is is nerve-wracking to say the least for sure yeah, you, you, I remember when we met that you, I think you won an award for your chef's knife, right? I did. Yeah. I got the, uh, the best chef's knife. Yeah. And deservedly. So I was so impressed. I mean, it's, you know, it's not, it's nice cause you can go there and I, I feel the same thing even now. I mean, when I go to one of these shows, even if I'm putting, you know, the best work out there, like I went, um, this last year of course was canceled the year before sure. and I brought six or seven knives but i had posted this is what i'm bringing to atlanta and literally sold probably most of them before i even got there uh oh wow guys yeah guys wrote me i was like oh man please can i can i whatever get it and they would pick it up there and they would allow me to keep it on the table and which was nice but when you're there you're you're looking at some of the best knife makers in the world and you know, people are getting a chance to look at your stuff. And so it is, it's kind of nerve wracking when you get that. Um, and that's the first show I had been at since I became a master actually, uh, two years ago, because, oh, you know, being a master, getting that, that, you know, that moniker, those, those letters on my blades, uh, sells of just, you know, when I post stuff, it just, it's, it sells. So I don't really have to worry about, you know, trying to market it and go a lot, a lot of it's, it's for me, it's too hard to try to make knives, to save them, to take to a show. Sure. Which, you know, I, I'm doing now more because Francesca wants me to. And, you know, it allows, you know, there's a couple of collectors that now buy my stuff that wouldn't, you know, didn't buy because they hadn't met me. So social mm-hmm. networking that way and being able to meet your clientele yeah. and then put a face behind what is the work that's being done. It's more personal and... Sure. You know, it's it does, you know, open up different avenues for for that. Uh, some guys do well at shows. Other guys, you know, don't. They have a different audience, different, you know, especially now that with the right. age of Instagram or the Internet, you know, there's, you know, businesses worldwide, not just at a knife show. But yeah, that that well, networking is important. Yeah. Well, and that's a great uh I guess uh, a lot of people I've talked to recently are starting to question the reason for shows anymore because, uh, well, not only what's happened in this last year with COVID-19 and and the concerns of crowds and stuff like that, but just with the fact that people are buying straight off the internet without even seeing the piece in person. Um, I'm curious, how have you observed kind of the business of knife making regarding shows and sales. Uh, how have you seen that kind of evolve? And I guess you've kind of said this a little bit already, but how have you seen it evolve 
uh, over the last, you know, whatever, 18 years since you first, I guess the first show you went to, you said was in 2006. So I guess about the last 14, 15 years. How have you well, I've only been to Blade Show West, uh, excuse me, the, to Atlanta. And then Blade Show West, I would go to every year because sometimes I couldn't, mm. you know, make a trip out to Atlanta. And sure. for me, um, either I sold them at a retailer or at a gun store, and yeah. that was my sales. Or um, sometimes people would go to my website, and I you know, typically didn't have stuff on the website. Uh, you know, that's a whole other funny story and how Francesca actually got involved with, with my, my business uh, was developing a site. I was having trouble with, you know, I, somebody that I paid to put me up a site and that site sucked and I couldn't get stuff put on there. And I'm yeah. having this conversation with this guy out in my shop on the phone and she goes inside and opens up Weebly and makes me a night, makes me a website while the guy I'm talking to this guy and I come in and she shows me this and he's on the phone. I was like, you know what? You're fired. Just send me over my, <laughs> send me over my Wilburn forge, you know, access. Yeah. And yeah. that's how I opened my site up. But, um, it was, you had to rely on shows back at the beginning because right. that got your name out. That got, you know, you exposure to, um, your clientele to the magazines, uh, if you entered and you won, you know, awards, that type of stuff. But as things had progressed to the point to where I started getting, you know, journeyman and master smith in the internet and things like that started opening up. And then when I became a master smith and I opened a, I think at that point I had just opened an Instagram account and okay. everything I post, I mean, it just, it just, it, it sells. I don't have to have a show. The only benefit really going to a show for me was, you know, of course, to see the men, these incredible craftsmen that have contributed to my trade and what I do, my skill set, to see them. And, of course, you know, the the association you have with other skilled craftsmen. And just it's that is encouraging. That keeps you going. But as far as a customer base, um, you do get, like I said, there was when I became a master, then there's it opened up a whole nother group of customers that want to buy but these are also established business people they have money they want to spend money on their their hobby which is collecting for them and they're kind of old school they want to meet the maker whereas right. now you have people on the internet that i have i don't know that i have one customer that has bought one knife they have bought multiple knives because oh that's awesome <laughs> yeah it's <laughs> You know, I, I had one guy in the Bay Area that I would I would see because I would do some local shows sometimes. And I met him and he would buy. He would always, you know, write me, "Hey, what do you have available?" Because yeah. I wasn't a master smith. I was, you know, was back when I before I was a journeyman, and he I brought you, he probably bought thirty knives from me Holy over the years, smokes. maybe more. Yeah. And then I started, you know, he said he was going to have a nice collection for his kid. And he goes, you, you know, I, you're going to be a master smith someday and it's going to be worth something. And, you know, I had foresight, I guess. I don't know. It's, but he yeah. liked the work. That's but great. as far as, you know, shows go, like I said, if I make a knife and I post it on the Internet, you know, typically it sells quickly. So it's hard to justify saving that knife, not putting it for sale. Sure. So I can 
you know, go to Atlanta where it cost me, you know, four, 400 bucks for, you know, a room, another four or 500 for the table, another, you know, airfare, four or 500 and then food. So you're, you got a big expense, you know, a couple grand you're spending to get and do a show. And then on top of it, you know, when I'm there, the only advantage I really see of a show is that I have hands on picking up and selecting handle material because I'll drop four or five thousand, six thousand bucks on handle material. When I go to a show. Yeah. So that's to me, that's that's probably the the best part is being able to you know to do that. But other than that, the way things are working out, especially, you know, COVID the way it was, it was a lot of stress trying to get whether we were going to get set up and move and, and have the Atlanta show. And then, you know, of course it got canceled and then got postponed postponed and then canceled. And, you know, in all reality, it was a bit of a relief uh, not being able to do that. And, you know, especially with, you know, like I said, COVID is, you know, the, the fear among, you know, with that and, and what was that going to do to the show? Because the, you know, the older crowd, is probably going to be very limited and a lot of those collectors just weren't going to be there. So, right. Yeah. But as far as, you know, as far as the internet and sales, um, you know, it all boils down to once, once you make something, don't try to get all Hollywood on the pricing. If the work ain't there, you know, Mm -hmm. the, the market will dictate what you're going to be able to sell the knife for. And, you know, as you can make, you know, I've had heard, I've had this conversation so many times with different makers. If you've established yourself and you make uh, a certain amount of money, like say Bob Kramer money on a knife, it's really hard to make something less than your optimum or your peak money maker, because you know it can affect how customers view that. So, sure. you know, and I and I've had this conversation, like I said, with uh, a lot of the top makers, is that they had wished they, you know, they didn't sell that five, six, seven thousand dollar folder because now the guy that you know bought the two thousand dollar folder, you can't go back and make a, you know, a simpler folder. It's just because it's it's, you know, some people get upset because they think it devalues the 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 pinnacle of what you've made. Right. And, you know, they want you just to keep going upwards. And, right. you know, that's nice, but it narrows out uh, a large portion of the your consumers when you do that. So well, you've got to have different levels. Stifling too. Because um, I, I think one of the things I really respect and appreciate about you and your work is you have the really refined work, but then you have kind of the grittier, like the brute to forge work that you do is I absolutely, in fact, it was, I was never really too interested in brute to forge. I saw it and I was like, oh, that's kind of nice or kind of interesting, but I, I never saw anything that really like blew my hair back. And then I saw one of your brute to forges and I was like, holy shit, that is a fucking cool knife. And it was from then on that I have had a thing for Brute to Forge and kind of that rougher, kind of grittier look. Um, and I would love to do more of that stuff uh, myself. And I forged some for myself, but I've never sold anything like that. And I think I've, I kind of feel like I've pigeoned my, kind of pigeonholed myself in this corner or painted myself into this corner where everything I make has to just be abs- the absolute best and better than anything I've done before uh, versus being able to kind of take a step back and relax a little bit um, 
and do some brute to forge stuff i mean even these kind of i've been doing these uh kind of in-house production knives which are they're, they're still all handmade they're just they're not as complex as my full custom like mosaic damascus forged general chef's knives um and even just taking a step back to do those kind of like makes me a little nervous as to how they'll be perceived um i don't even know if i had an actual question in there but i i just well, i i understand exactly what you're saying and and you're right you know you what i found is that i I don't, I don't personally, I don't take custom orders. I never have. Um, I make what I want to make. And if people like it, they buy it. And yeah. I have, I mean, just recently, I've, I've taken deposits on some bigger buoys I'm making. And the reason I never even took a deposit if somebody wanted something was because if you don't like it, don't buy it. Somebody else will. And that, <laughs> that allows me that kind of freedom that if I want to make if I, all I want to do is slip joint folders for a month or two, that's what I make. Mm. And I mean, I could just, if all I made was slip joint folders, I can make a living on those. But right. you, you talk about pigeonholing yourself. I'm not a slip joint folder maker. I'm not just a, you know, a culinary knife maker. I don't just right. make fancy buoys. I don't just make skinners. I make all of them. And yeah. when I get bored with one, you know, you know what happens if you get bored with something, you're just, it's just not, your heart's not in it. And I want my heart to be in my work. So I have, I probably have, you know, 15 blades sitting on my workbench right now of hardened, ready to go, waiting for handles. Some of them coming up here, coming up are going to be, they're going to be really fancy, you know, frame handled mosaic Damascus buoys. And I am so looking forward to it. I have two or three folders and guys. What's that? I I said, I'm looking forward to them too. I've been following them as you've been showing them on Instagram. Oh yeah. It's no, I'm getting, I'm giddy. I'm on my tiptoes running around the shop. I can't wait to do this. But (laughs) you know, at the same time, I have four or five folders in different stages of being finished and guys writing me, Hey, when you, you know, no pressure, but when are you going to do another folder? Not right now. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not on it. I don't take, I I did one folding knife. I'd made a video of it and I thought, okay, I'll start taking orders. And I took, I think 32 reservations. And I was like, this is nuts. This is all I'm going to be is this folder, you know, this one particular style, this one folder. And so I kind of, you know, everybody else that, you know, wrote in, I was like, uh, no, it'll, it'll, First come, first serve. If you see it, grab it. I, right. I just, I couldn't see myself. It, to me, it felt like pressure. And I don't, I'm not sure. in this for, for pressure. I don't, I don't want to make one particular knife. And that, you know, to be honest with you, that allows me to go back and make, you know, a Brute de Forge, which I made two or three of them this week. And I'm, yeah, Forge went out yesterday, did one over the weekend. I'll have them finished out this week. And, and I love to do them. And yeah. I have guys waiting for these buoys. So, you know, and I, and like I said, I, once I made the blades, I took deposits on three of them Mm. so that, or four of them. So all, and that's all they are is just a deposit. It holds them for that knife, but it's not like I told the customer, you're not committed to buy it. I'll make it. And then you got first crack at it. And after that, 
you know, I, I don't, I don't like the pressure of it. Actually, yeah, I did take four of them and I, and I kind of feel it just saying it makes me feel the pressure of, sure. you know, I got to get there. I got to get their knife done, but it's, I'm having enough fun and joy in making that, that I'm, I'm fine with that. But as far as like, uh, I don't do custom orders. I, I had one time I entertained a, you know, he thought he was a, a big time collector and he called <laughs> up and wanted to talk to me and he, he wanted different aspects of, you know, uh, David Lish, Quisenberry, Kyle Royer, uh, Tim Hancock, and these oh, different yeah. aspects Frank of different knife. makers. <laughs> yeah, Frankenknife. And I, you know, and I finally told him, I was like, if you like features of their knives, go buy them. I'm right. going to do what I'm going to do. It was 45 minutes of wasted time and frustration on the phone with this guy. And to be honest with you, I don't know if he's ever bought from me since. But I told him, forget it. I don't do custom orders. He goes, well, I want a custom knife. I was like, yeah, you're talking to the wrong guy. I, you know, I, I'll make, I'll take suggestions and I'll take, yeah. you know, direction, but I'm the maker and just let me go. If you don't like it, don't worry. Don't buy it. Somebody else will. And that, that has allowed me to keep my heart into it. So I can make something fancy and I can make a, you know, a lot less money Skinner and yeah. be just as satisfied with my work. See, and I think I, I wish I had had a conversation with you a long time ago because I 100% agree. Like where you're at and the way you're operating is exactly how I hope to be operating um, as in in the not too distant future. Um, but it, and I think part of it was part of the reason I've gone the route that I did. It was because. Um, well, I guess I'm sorry to step back uh, as you mm -hmm. were thinking, Daniel O'Malley kind of earlier it, it i i owe a big debt of gratitude to him as well when i first started to help me get an idea of what my work was worth um and and to also help kind of expose me to people who are interested in that level of work um through his cutlery store a lot of people see um kind of the 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 discount that a uh, purveyor takes so that they're making money on the resale as a hit to them. But it's honestly, it's kind of an advertising about there's advertising value there in that um, it helps you get your name out there in a very serious way from somebody who is a very serious gallerist um, and all who can very honestly give you a, a, a number to start working at. Um, and but man, I, I, all I kept thinking is like that 30%, I could really use that extra 30% or, you know, of, uh, of that sale of that knife. But honestly, sometimes nowadays I actually wish I still was doing that because I would be mm -hmm. making, I think I would be making more money now if e even selling wholesale to a gallerist, um, than I am right now with my knife making. And, but I would also have that freedom. Like you're talking about. You can kind of whatever is whatever is inspiring you, you at that moment to make to forge or whatever pattern to design you you can forge that out make something out of it and you can you always have at least with this especially if you have a gallery that you work with you have somebody who will buy it and that you could also i think a, a way that some people who are um concerned about 
wholesaling to a retailer is looking at it from a, the perspective of working, having basically a business partner who handles kind of the marketing and sales end of the thing. You just get to do the knife making, which is really actually the fun part. And then at least for me, <laughs> I hate, I'm not the big, I'm not a good salesperson. I'm not, a, I, I, I like doing some of the quote unquote branding and marketing with social media, but I really want to focus on the knife making and the steel making and all that kind of like the fun stuff. And uh, I'm definitely not in that position currently, but I, I feel like the route that you've taken and, and, and I feel like you've, you've, you've taken an honest route where you kind of, you, you it's like a slow buildup. You've taken, you've, you've done, like you said before, you, you've, you've uh, paid your dues, which means, you know, you're not getting, you know, hundreds of dollars for the first knives that you're um, selling or, or whatever. Oh, I guess actually <laughs> the first one, what was it? 475? But still, I mean, you started nowadays, 475 is like, I think a lot of people would not be actually, I think some people would be excited, but I think a lot of people are thinking, Oh, I should, it's Damascus. It's a big blade. I should probably get like at least a thousand dollars for this thing. Um, when honestly starting lower and building up reputation, clientele, that slow burn is for over the long run is definitely, um, the more sustainable route to go. Cause you'll end up in a better position, like where you're at, Aaron. And I, well, you know, it's, it's, it's like try to do it that way. <laughs> well, it's like what you mentioned too. I mean, the the best like in the car business, the best salesman is a clean car. If somebody walks out there and you have the perfect car, low miles, perfectly clean, it looks like it, um, a grandmother drove it. It sells itself, and that's true sure. with with knives. If you put out a good product, it's going to sell itself. Now, I I could not agree more with you than having a marketing partner like say blade gallery they took my knives when i was you know i started i i started making knives because i love to hunt and fish so hunting to me i needed to i could never find a good skinner that's what my first introduction to any type of custom knife making was i was looking for a good knife and then that's how i found out there was actually custom knife making i had no idea how to do it or how to get involved but that's why my interest was peaked when i met cliff parker but the thing with Blade Gallery or a purveyor is if you are greedy, you're not going to get anywhere in life. And that's what I learned building houses or any type of business I ran is it's not about squeezing every little single drop of juice out of that lemon. If you, if you are greedy, it shows and people don't want to deal with that. If you're arrogant, people don't want to deal with that. That's so distasteful. So you have to have the mind, the right mindset going in this. And, you know, as you mentioned about Blade Gallery, yeah, they're like a business partner. I owe a great debt of gratitude to Daniel, not just for the marketing of my knives, but also the feedback he would tell me on my knives. Or if I, you know, my pricing, my first few knives that he bought from me or actually sold on commission at his store were my journeyman knives. You know, I thought if I got 350 375 you know, for a Skinner, I, I thought that was fair. And okay, he was going to take his commission. All right. Well, little did I know that that 375 knife would be $600 really quick because he would market it correctly. Right. So I, I am so happy to pay him his commission because my little Skinner that I was happy getting 375 for or 475 is now selling for 650. Right. And 
yeah, he makes a little bit more on it, but he brings my product. As my skill comes up, he brings my product up to market value. And now, you know, there's knives I don't, there's rarely a knife I make that's under $1,000, but being able to establish, you know, that business model, uh, it was, it was a huge help by especially Daniel O'Malley, but there's been other purveyors that have sold my stuff and, and they have, you know, they have your knife and they have everybody else's knife and they can compare and they can tell you where you truly sit in the market, what the value is. And you're not, you know, it's guys that think, Oh yeah, I need to get a thousand dollars for a buoy. Okay. Well, that's fine. Now we're getting, you know, now I'm getting five, six, 7,000 for one. So it helped to be in, in that position and have a business partner like that. And like you said, look at all the advertisement he gets to. They, they get something spectacular in there. It'll make a magazine because they take the pictures, they promote it, they put it out there and, you know, being, being published, be honest with you, you know, you think, Oh, I've, you know, I'm in, I'm in, you know, not just blade magazine. I've been in all kinds of, you know, different, they wrote an article about me in the San Francisco Chronicle. They made a video. They did, you know, all these different type of local and regional papers, uh, magazines have, have done articles. Business really hasn't come from that for me. Sure. It, you know, it does help. The Internet's, the internet's better. But being able to have a model uh, that you can feel confident in, sometimes I will send – I don't really need to – sell knives with a purveyor anymore i still send knives to blade gallery because of our relationship even though i know i can sell that knife either on my website or through instagram i like they just ran out of of knives i had so i sent them three of them folders two folders and a fixed blade that i could have easily sold i mean i had people waiting um for my folders and i shipped them up to blade gallery because i want to keep that relationship going and yeah. so there's nothing on Blade Gallery for me right now, but they're in the process of taking pictures and putting it up. And as soon as those sell, I'm going to send him other stuff. And yeah. it's 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 a relationship that I value. And if there's new knife makers listening to this, if you can get the quality of your work up and have somebody like Blade Gallery market it, it's going to do work. It's going to do incredible things for your reputation. Your skill set, you'll get feedback from guys that not only handle your knife, but they're going to handle all kinds of makers. And they can give you some pointers on what you can do to improve. And, yeah, to me, it's worth every penny spent. Yeah. Um, I got a question for you here. And this is just my own question. So, like I mentioned before, you have a, a wide swath of skills. Um from your folding knives to your frame handled bowies to uh your brute to forge and your chef's knives where where do you want well i guess first first is kind of a two-parter uh what are some of the things that you are you still have challenge with like some of the process that you still have challenges with and then also what are some things that you hope to learn as you continue to move forward with your knife making career oh man great question well, you know, as as far as like a, a business model, big fancy buoys uh, is a really small sliver of the pie. 
of people that want to or can afford to buy them. Um, and I, I have a lot of, you know, overseas clients that are spending the money for that. So if that's all I cater to, that's all I, I would, I would, um, I'd have as customer base. I would like to get better at my folders. I would like to be thought of in the realm of, a, you know, Tony Bowes or, you know, Bill Ruppel, that type of thing. So I, I'm, I'm going to go spend some time with Luke Swenson up in Idaho, just at his shop, just make with him. I've been to, you know, different areas. I want to get better at my, my folders and my folders, you know, that's, you know, I have people tell me I'm right up there with, with, you know, the best makers, but I want to be, I just want to be better at that because I get a lot of joy. It's like therapy when I put together a folder, my, my culinary knives, um, that really is the hugest slice of the pie of the market because if there's a lot of foodies, uh, everybody cooks, everybody eats, and people that have never have an interest in knives want a good quality chef's knife. And yeah, you, so you you know how that is. That's that's one of the hugest markets there are out there. Yeah, I I want to get better at that in the in the upper end. Like I'm doing some mosaic integrals i don't do a ton of integrals but you know they take more work more effort more more thought and especially since i just now this last five months got my equipment back over here to my my shop i'm starting to forge a lot more than i had previously because i had my i had all my finishing stuff here at my house then my forging equipment was at a blacksmith shop in town which was you know it was a nice arrangement but still it's too hard to you know, forge someplace else and then bring it back home. And I just rather have everything in one place. So I'm going to start doing probably quite a few more, um, you know, integrals and or chef's knives, you know, fancier mosaic. I, I have not made a lot of fancy Damascus in the last probably four years because of, you know, moving to Idaho and having my equipment someplace else. But I want to get, I want to develop my, my Damascus you know, bring it up another sure. a notch or two. But uh, no, I'm looking oof. at your knives right now. The chef's knife with uh, I think it's a uh, yeah the redwood handle. That's a pretty damn look nice looking knife. <laughs> yeah, that's you know, and that was uh, a scrap off of one of the buoys I made. The end of the billet, and you know, of course, a, a billet for a buoy is a lot thicker, and I was able to draw that out to a you know a good size, you know, an eight and a half inch chef's knife and yeah yeah i i enjoy i enjoy those those are you know there's a lot more prep and grinding and, and work in one of those to me than in a buoy because you know you're dealing with thicker material and you know you get i still get my my blades pretty thin even on my buoys and then they're sure. they feel I, I want them to feel heavy duty durable but i want them to feel elegant as well so you know there's there's things in that well, I don't know if I, I'm trying to think of your question now. How am I, did I answer that correctly or adequately? I don't think there's a correct answer, but I, yeah, no, I think whatever, you know, I think you did answer it. Basically I was asking, you know, what do you look forward to doing and what are some of the things you still uh, have some challenges with? Yeah. I think you nailed that with the folding knives and wanting to um, do more uh, fancy Damascus and stuff like that. And so, yeah. Well, I'm you know what? Look, let me add this in there too. I, I, I am planning on doing a sword. So I would like to do something really fancy with that. Okay. And 
and some more fancy daggers because I really love making daggers. Yeah, and yeah, so I'm you. You're going to be seeing some mosaic feather, you know, different daggers coming up here that that are going to be a little more. You know, here's you know, with with makers out there too. Is when I started looking to see what is a Quillian dagger examples that I could look at. You know, there was I seen you know I Jason Knight had one uh, that I I liked. Uh, but really there's not a lot of good examples of what the master Smith qualifications are. You know, you're supposed to make a quillium dagger with at least a 10 inch blade. There wasn't a lot of good examples out there when I was looking. So, yeah. you know, I, I, I want to make some more fancy daggers. Those are, those are, uh, you know, something I want to get into. Yeah. Well, I'd be remiss if we didn't talk about family. First off, because I can hear you, I think your granddaughter's running around in the background. <laughs> but no, that also, was my that was my wife. Oh, she, uh, she said, "Talk about the collaborations I got coming up. I got a few makers I'm I'm oh, collaborating sure. with. That's that's oh, coming right. up. Well, let's hear. Him. Yeah. So, well, Salem Straub, he's he's you know makes some incredible Damascus. And we had a chance to meet a couple of years ago and, uh, you know, I told him, Hey, we should do a collab. Jason Morrissey, he, he approached me and we're still working on that. But so we finalized a couple specs last night, uh, between Salem and myself, it's going to be a, a buoy. It's going to be a frame handled, nice 10 inch blade mosaic. I told him I'm going to leave all that creativity up to him. I want some type of twist for the frame, spacer, and guard. He's going to make the Damascus for the blade, and then I'm going to assemble it. We're going to try to video this thing or at least have a whip in progress throughout the whole thing, and then probably going to auction it off at some point when we're, when we're done with it all. But, it, yeah, that's coming up. That sounds killer. Well, part of the reason I want to bring up family is – because your daughter Francesca is a phenomenal leather maker, I, I I think she's one of the most popular leather makers regarding the knife industry, if not the most popular. Obviously, there are other very talented leather workers out there, but she's the one I see on Instagram the most, especially at least. And a lot yeah. of makers are going to her for her leather work, and she's also a knife maker. So talk yeah. about her bit and her involvement in the business and or in knife making well I'll, I'll tell you she is she's blowing me away she's killing it on the sheaths i mean i have not it's you know it's like you know you say you see one of my knives you see the creativity it's the same when i see with her she has developed her skill set uh and putting these things together i never thought of this stuff i mean i was you know it's kind of funny how we started in this is that she you know, is, is very crafty as far as her hands and what she wants to do. And her dad's a knife maker. So she wanted to start making knives. Well, I had a show coming up in San Francisco. I was, it's a, it's a show where they actually paid me to go to. And it was, you know, they set up a little atelier and I was, a I guess like a, a monkey on a, on a stick out there for, it was a, <laughs> it was a, it's true. I was, a, it was a high end uh, fundraiser. And okay. they wanted to have six uh, local craftsmen in San Francisco. And, you know, Charles and Ellen Schwab were there and they were, it was, it was just an expensive deal. And so I had this coming up. And so Francesca, 
she had been fiddling out in the shop and I was like, well, why don't you let's, let's, let's forge out a couple knives and let's put some together. So you have something to take and sell there. And so I helped her with, you know, and Francesca, she takes good direction. I would, okay, this is how you grind. Okay. And then step back and let her do it. This is how you hammer, okay, hammer this way. And, you know, it's all, when she does a knife, it's her, it's not daddy doing the knife and her watching it is her making the knife 100%. Let me, let me assure you of that. Because if, if one thing about Francesca, she's pretty independent and she don't want my, she don't want my hands on it. She wants to do it. So I believe it, you know, so she, I, she took maybe, I think she took some forged some Damascus, took a scrap piece of mosaic I had and forged out some 52, 100, and I helped her, you know, what she needed to do. And of course I got the equipment. So it was, it was, you know, much, she had a much bigger advantage than make some, somebody on their own, but she got some knives ready for the show and a little Skinner. I think she sold for close to a thousand dollars because here we have this show. And of course, Francesca is very beautiful. And at this time, I think she was, uh, she must've been 17, maybe younger. 16. Okay. Anyway, she's, you know, very attractive and people were like, wait a minute, you made this. And <laughs> so like, oh, we, we got to buy it just because you made this. So, you know, my first Skinner, like I said, I sold for four seventy five. Hers, I think she was a thousand dollars or something. Oh, like wow. She sold out here. She, uh, she sold everything that night. And so, <laughs> and plus, great. you know, she's, yeah, she's got a great personality and, you know, very skilled that way. So, <clears throat> But it was getting harder now during, you know, we're, we're talking, you know, she's at that age, she's dating, she's, you know, gets married and she's made a few knives, but she's done other things. And I had a customer that I made a real nice, fancy uh, Bowie knife. He wanted something from Francesca and she had made a sheath for her knife. So he kind of, I don't know how this all first started for her she had made a belt and she had made something and this customer said oh would you make a sheath for this knife that your dad made now i thought my sheath looked pretty good it was a nice looking sheath well she wanted <laughs> he wanted something different he just wanted something from her yeah. right and she came up with this idea and put this sheath out that i mean i was blown away and we sent it off to coop to get pictures and i mean i i couldn't believe it i was like you got to be kidding where where did this come from well Fruit of the loin, I guess. I don't know. It's she. That was her first sheath that she did, and it it blew my doors off. And after that, she, you know, she got married, and then here we have a, you know, a grandchild coming along. Um, well, they were married for two years, I think, before Olivia was born. Well, in that time, she's starting to get into her leather craft. She starts. She wants to learn how to make wallets, and she starts doing that. And it's, you know, it is physically, you know, it's hard, you know, as you know, it's a lot of work to put in there and hammer in and forge out yeah. a blade and, and do all that. Well, the, the leather stuff started selling. She was making wallets and, and that started selling and making belts. And then pretty soon she has, you know, customers are taking, you know, my work and they want a sheath from her. Well, as you know, as time progresses, her, I mean, if anybody has seen her sheaths now, we've done a couple collaborations and mm -hmm. I mean, I am so blown away by what, what is out there that she's making. And yeah. 
it's it's just a whole different mindset in her creativity. And sure. that took off to the point where her wallets and sheath making, she does the sheaths, her her husband's now, he was a commercial electrician. He had to quit being an electrician to make sheaths with Francesca. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's how busy they got. And nice. so now she does the sheaths and he does the wallets. And they have uh, they have a friend of theirs now that is helping. She's a, a younger girl, and she she is very meticulous. And she's starting to do some of the stitching because they stitch everything by hand. So she's doing right. some of the stitching on some of the wallets, and you know, and they have a nice little workshop downstairs in the basement of their house. But um, yeah, so her and I are doing well. I'll, I always have something uh, in collaboration with her. So sure. if I make something nice, like I have a dagger. That's over there. She's doing the sheath for, but she's just did a a sheath for, I was over there looking at yesterday. It was like a a Josh Smith. It was a dagger that he did. I I go over there and I'm looking at this. I'm like, holy cow, you got to be kidding me. She has ivory that she shaped and formed is on the outside of the sheath, like a chevron. Um, She, and the way she did an overlay, she's dying alligators i mean i i was looking at this and i'm just like it is it is on a whole nother level you know you look at the the measuring stick or the the lexus the gold standard would be like a paul long type sheath this is a a a level that is so far above above that as far as creativity and materials used and quality i mean i was i was i was shocked and speechless when i went over there yesterday so when you you know for me to see that level, it's not just a sheath. It's on a whole nother level. It'll it'll come out. I'm sure there'll be pictures of it. But I was I was pretty blown away by the creativity. So she has taken what I have shown her and just completely morphed it into something else because it's it's way above what I had taught her. Yeah, you got to be proud. I can't imagine that you're not. Well, you know, I, I am proud of her work. I'm proud of the person she is, more importantly. Both right. my kids, uh, they, they're Absolutely. they're both great people. And if anybody's ever had a chance to talk to Francesca, she's, you know, she's very grounded, very down to earth, um, a joy, a joy to talk to. And Absolutely. you know, she's got a she's got a great personality, and it's not, you know, you know, there's she's not stuck on herself at all. Uh, she's very, like I said, very, very down to earth to, to get along with. Yeah. yeah. So it's, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, you know, to say the least proud of, proud of the work she does and, and really the person she is. It's truly. Yeah. It's, I, 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 you know, I got a four year old son and I hope, you know, I would love for him someday to, uh, take interest in the knife making, but honestly, whatever he takes interest in, um, you, um, I, I'll try to, I'll support him in whatever he does. But I, I'll be really excited. He already shows a lot of interest in the forging and in the grinding and stuff. And sometimes he and his his mom brings it to the shop, and he'll he'll hang out and kind of watch some of the stuff I'm doing, as long as it's healthful and safe for him to be there and checking that stuff out. But yeah, man, it's it's we've had a great episode i we're well over two hours and i just you know i i know you got 
a whole day ahead of you still yourself. And I know I do too. I, I just want to thank you for taking the time. You know, this is just a few days before Christmas. And so I really, I really appreciate you taking the time to jump in here and chat with me. And, um, and one last thing, I got to get this last sponsor to read out, but if anybody's, Again, we've talked been talking about getting serious about knife making and and if you are if you're gonna be making knives, you gotta use belts for grinding on your two by seventy two inch grinder or whatever size grinder actually because combat will cut belts for whatever size grinder you use and uh if you go uh to combatabrasives.com, you use knife talk fifteen you can save fifteen percent on whatever you got going on. Um, or they have abrasives, they have adhesives, they have all kinds of stuff that you need. And in fact, right now they got, uh, our friend Neil Kamimura has a, uh, a box set. So this is kind of a starter kit and this is, it's all the abrasives he uses to do all the grinding, uh, he does on his knives. And he's been doing a phenomenal job forging and grinding out these chef's knife blades that he makes. And so go check them out again, combatabrasives.com, knife talk 10 or sorry knife talk 15 at checkout uh to save yourself 15 percent. aaron thank you so much for hanging out i, I really love hearing your story i'm really glad we had this opportunity to talk um i look forward to getting to spend some quality time with you and uh, in the future i would love to get get over there and visit you guys i've i've actually talked to francesca about this coming over and and bringing the family once things are a little uh, less of problematic, I guess, more than anything and yeah. getting the and just get some forging in and, and spend some quality time together. Cause you guys are, uh, you, you're salt of the earth people, people, and you're good. Appreciate that. Know, be connected to. So thank well, you. You're gonna, so. Yeah. You're going to love running the hammer. I'll tell you that it's, it's a joy to work in the shop. Now I got some room, so that will be good. Yeah. We look forward oh, to yeah. it. We should start working on our own collaboration. <laughs> oh man i'd love it we should yeah. we should I, you make some you make some damascus and i'll put it together awesome. do a we'll do a buoy or something like that i love it we'll do it all right brother something something outside of chef's knife yeah sure <laughs> all right my friend all right everybody everybody listens to this bro- this podcast you heard it here we're gonna do something it's happening it's going right. down <laughs> well th- thank you for having me on appreciate it very much Absolutely. If you like this show, take a look at our other shows made for makers just like you at www.makery.network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? 
Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.